The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Third story used to be the tank. Ah, that sounded nice this morning. Sam, thank you very much. um, Nothing like the one at the Snow Mission Inn. And we are the winemakers. We are with Will Buckland this morning. Oh. It's Bart Hanson, Brian cool Casey, Sam Couture, intro. and John Myers. Cool we did the Mark Marin. <laughs> That's all the good thing. His oh. his podcast is literally what the fuck. Because if you, uh, just so you know, Will, we recorded the last three minutes about your the wine, the, uh, 171-year-old water tower office that now provides a different... Uh, I call it the Starship Enterprise. The Starship Enterprise. <laughs> Do you have a, a bridge? It just feels like you're on the bridge, yeah. You know, you're looking, like looking out that way. More power, Scotty! And where exactly is this? This is on Old Hill Ranch, where I live. Um, Glen Ellen. Right? What an amazing th- spot in the world. Glen Ellen, California. It's like the gateway to Glen Ellen. Right? It's really that's, quite- what, that's what I think of it, that sort of... that. That, you know, north of Madrone Road, south of the park. I mean, is it fair to say that Madrone Road, whether you go a quarter mile south, quarter mile north, that's like the heart of Sonoma Valley? Like, it's this, it's, or the geographical center of Sonoma Valley. Is that fair to say? Did you put I'm your not, water tower in the sure. geographic center of Sonoma sure. Valley? <laughs> I'm very objective, but I would say yes. It's the heart of the Sonoma Valley. <laughs> and it is definitely the most uh, spectacular part of the valley. And the reason for that is because it's um, the first vineyard after the regional park or the developmental center. So um, if you stand in the middle of the vineyard at night, there's no light. Not a single light do you see. It's dark. And, you know, we had... Two golden eagles there, yes, or last week. Cool. Um, pretty, pretty remarkable wildlife, and it's just—it's very special. And there's some really cool vines there too. Well, I'm hoping they leave that corridor open, the wildlife corridor. Uh, right. That's, that's so uh, important. I think it's going to. Um, I, I mean, well, isn't that? It, it has to, right? I mean, for life to go on, it has to stay open, like. There's no doubt what has to happen where SDC is. It needs to be preserved and left open and, you know, for the wildlife corridor, right? And which that's all part of the same area. Well, it's about 1,000 acres they're dealing with out there. And they say that no matter what plan, 700 are going to be wildlife left alone as is nature. The other 300 are up for, you know, you can either have a thousand homes or a couple hundred homes. No, they can't build any homes there. There's no infrastructure for it. 
There's no, no, no. I, I, call Susan Gorin. Okay. <laughs> I've spoken to Susan about it. The, um, they did release a preliminary real, plan. Real quick. And uh, is it okay to digress? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, go ahead, man. I mean, this is this is a conversation about the. Heart There's a campus of 160 acres that has been by law designated to be for housing. That's the campus, and um, I believe the county plan wouldn't allow for any further development than that. Uh, the concern I have is um, that the NIMBYism is going to um, keep the traffic issue alive and that they're going to solve that issue by putting a road through the valley. That valley right there, the Sonoma Valley, I mean, it's really the only place in Sonoma Valley that is undeveloped and, right. and pristine. It is, it's a wetland. It's, um, so it would be nice not to have a road through it. It's not. Uh, it's just for your. For you the think wildlife. they'll connect the back of like BR Cone? Uh, well, that's, that's where they'll go in. Yeah, they'd go in. Who knows what they would do yeah. or how they would address it? But the whole valley stretches from there up to um, almost up to Mayo, or not quite that far. But it's it's a good mile and a half of. Space. It's an amazing spot. You're it's an right. Amazing spot. It, it is. It's the one spot that's pristine. Nobody's been in there at all. Uh, I hear there are some real construction issues with the old SDC city itself and a lot of stuff that's buried there that is going to be a super fun site when they start getting into it anyway. I, I sometimes wonder if it's going to be in my time frame. I, don't I doubt it. Get my panties in a bunch. It's just Honestly, Will, I don't think be. anything's going to happen I, there in our lifetimes. I may have made the mistake, but as I left Magnolia this morning, I asked both Jack and Coral if they had any questions for Uncle Will on the podcast and uh, Jack was you know after saying a bunch of shitty things um, said (laughs) (laughs) ask him what he's optimistic about (laughs) and um, in looking at 2021 and standing in your bridge in the heart of the valley um, with the white blend let's just go deep what are what are you optimistic about Uncle Will Buckland well, I, I, I guess I'm not the most optimistic person. I think maybe th- I, that was the implication. I know, yeah. I know. But that doesn't mean I don't have hope, yeah. even though hope is a wasted emotion. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> what am I optimistic about? Well, you know, it's, it's still Sonoma. It's amazing to be here and so beautiful. Right now, after 14 inches of rain, or actually now we're up to about 16 already this year, this fall, it feels pretty, pretty normal, pretty lovely. I'm, I'm happy to be here. That's all I know. I uh, forecasting a bumper cover crop vintage in the spring of twenty. Right. I'm optimistic about a cover crop. You're optimistic about a cover <laughs> That's crop. A very yeah. robust cover crop. We're optimistic about how many people will take pictures of your mustard and on post on Instagram. I have all the lawsuits that we'll get from right. people trespassing into the into the cover crops the and cover getting crop. lost <laughs> they're gonna end up exactly um, i saw a woman today had pulled off the side of the road on carragher and unfortunately had sunk into the uh, soft soil mm. and as much as i felt for her and she had a uh a, a tow truck coming um it also felt pretty good to know that the ground was that soft and you know yeah she obviously hasn't been in the country when it rains. Well, you know, if they somebody who moved to Sonoma during the last 18 months, you know, whatever, leave the city, buy, go to your country place, there has been no mud to sink into, <laughs> no mud to speak of until uh, 
you know, the last couple of weeks. Boy, howdy, did things change. Yeah. What a... What about the the creek? Have you seen the creek with the salmon in it? It's amazing. I've seen that. That is so exciting. Yeah. Um, to see, to hear that, I haven't seen it myself personally. Uh, Steve but. Lee, who's a biology marine marine teacher, biologist, yeah, yeah. Um, has been taking some great photos, and you see, you actually see the salmon jumping up over the rocks, going upstream. And I, Sam, you and I were talking about this a little yesterday. They're coming from the bay. The San Francisco Bay, all the way up in these little seasonal creeks, man. And it's amazing that uh, that they it make... It gives me goosebumps. It's just yeah. so cool. It's a cool thing, isn't well, it? I mean, Something the, that I don't think has happened in my lifetime. Maybe when I was a kid and I don't remember. I don't think I've seen that in a long, long time. Did any of you guys ever get a haircut at Johnny's right next to the El Molino Cafe back in the day? Mm, no. Nope. Johnny was born and raised in the valley and tell stories oh, it was so fun to go in there and hear his stories from back in the 19 before the war right. um 40s that war uh and just the they would go out and just pull fish out of the creeks and put them in baskets with hand by hand right. it was just so so much life in this valley it's right. kind of hard to imagine but and it all goes back to water doesn't it it all goes back to water that's a nice segue yeah um and wine and wine um and, and really, we haven't as classically started in the middle of a conversation in a while as yeah. we just did yeah. there. I'm proud of us. That was good. Um, Put the brakes on. Should somebody do an introduction? Should I do an introduction? Yeah. Uh, today's guest, 15 minutes into the show, is um, Will Buckland of Old Hill Ranch and Buckland, Buckland Family? Buckland Family Wines uh, of the, at this point, sort of legendary... Uh, in this valley, Buckland and Teller family. Um, and the wines that he brought to us are primarily from uh, a vineyard that is 140-year-old vines? 170-year-old? Some hella old grapevines? Hella old is hella about old. How, about hella old. Can, I think, you know, that we should just make that a label designation. You know, there's like ancient and classic and historic and then... Hella, hella. And, uh, old Hill, hella old vines. I like it better than ancient. I've never been satisfied with that uh, nomenclature. Hella uh, old. And, hella and old. The ranch, you have a, a incredible lineup of wine from 40 acres or so of vineyard here in the heart of the valley. Um, and let's just, we can jump into, let's jump in, you know, there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, but we poured the white blend. Um, so let's start there quickly and then digress further as we uh, will surely do. Okay. So this is the, <laughs> this is the mixed whites and um, as yeah, I welcome w- Will Buckland to the uh, podcast. Thank you so much, yeah. you guys, for having me. It's so nice to be here. I don't get out very often. Here I am at the 16600 Tasting House. How many times have I said I was going to come here to visit? Never did. Now right. I'm here. Now you're here. Nice to it be o- here. It only thank took you. Five years. <laughs> um, it's it's worth starting with a little bit of history of the vineyard just so I I think it puts everything into context. Uh, to start with, um, the original planting, which we call our ancient field blend, is a field blend. It was planted, we think, in the 1880s. We don't know exactly the born date. Um, but they're old vines and they're, um, you know, uh, beautiful, old, gnarly, crispy vines. Um, the, the vineyard was planted as a field blend. So there are, in 
this one block, and there are several blocks that we'll talk about individually in the vineyard, but this one block, the ancient block, which is 12 acres, there are 30 to 35 um, different grape varieties all interplanted. So that means that they're salt and peppered throughout the vineyard. And um, that was the tradition of the time. That's how vineyards were planted back in the day. And that is um, um, that all those grapes get harvested um, and then uh, harvested together and then co-fermented together and they make one wine. Um, there's caveats to everything, but that's generally how it's done. And um, my career prior to um, taking over managing our family ranch was uh, as a winemaker. I worked um, all over. I worked in Anderson Valley and in Forestville and then up in Oregon for the last eight years before I moved back here. Um, never had I worked with the field blend before, and I was never really that interested in that paradigm and I have shifted my views on on um, wine and, and I feel like any fermentation benefits from co-fermentation so in other words in, in terms of making a pure varietal uh, Pinot Noir for example um, was what my experience was but when I came to Old Hill and started making wines with 30 different grape varieties you know it was a lot, pretty big head scratcher to start but over time, I really start to understand the, the benefits of that in terms of um, the wine, the outcome, the stannin, the tannins, the structure, how, how it benefits from all that. That's 20 years ago I started doing this. Maybe it's 22 years now. Um, so talking about the mixed whites, um, this is an idea that came to me born out of the old vines. And I think hopefully everything we do is sort of born out of that paradigm, that field blend paradigm. Walking through the vineyard, um, we were, I, we have five or six different white varieties in the blend. So in the ancient blend, those would be French Columbard. We have some Muscat of Alexandria. We have some Chasselis, which is beautiful, big, huge sort of watery grape, but it's super beautiful to look at. Um, we have Claret Blanc, um, and we have a couple of Chardonnay vines. And, um, is, what, is Chasselis and Golden Chasselis the same? Yeah. yeah. Oldest variety, uh, uh, allegedly, according to um, Jancis Robbins. Anyhow, variety on planet Earth. Earth. Is, oh, oh. I mean, I don't know how that how they know that, but that's what was huh. stated. I mean, you could see people being attracted to that sort of uh, you know phenotype of some wild grapevine that they discovered and trying to propagate more of it because it was big and juicy and beautiful big and juicy and productive yeah yeah um anyhow so i um had an experience when i worked at navarro winery this is um in terms of blending should we be dinging we should be dinging oh yeah we should yeah that's a ding sure What's we, that for? I'm uh, sorry, I'm, when, out, of, I'm when, out of the loop. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the dinging. You just you just <laughs> keep dropping the names of impressive places that you've oh, been I see. in your career. Oh, yeah. Or you know, we miss chances, but that's right. Oh, yeah, do you? <laughs> I guess that's that's a pretty good one. <laughs> well, I read her book. I get a ding. Wow. Okay, that's pretty low bar. <laughs> Considerably. <laughs> I mean, look who you're here with. <laughs> All right. So, um, we used to blend 
everything had a little bit of a little bit in it you know like we'd make chardonnay or they make chardonnay and we'd have these tastings and you'd add three or two percent converts and say hey wow that really pops mm -hmm. so um as i'm walking through the vineyard i'm thinking wow french columbard muscat french columbard really neutral muscat nice but and and has a very orange blossom character it's it's very um um fruity and uh i thought well wouldn't that be kind of an interesting blend uh, you know just a smooth a few percent of muscat but anyway that's where the idea came from and then it started turning into this well what other white varieties are in some of these old field blends and i lo i looked around and i went to monte rosso they have some old semillon cuttings i went to compagni portis they have converts meter and riesling i went to carlisle and got um uh shannon <laughs> shannon blanc carlisle vineyard shannon blanc um Malvasia, lovely variety. Oh my God, I love Malvasia. Um, and then I got in the truck with Phil, and he said, "Well, don't you want some Grenache Blanc?" Being a um, Grenache fan myself, so we went to a vineyard on—I I, don't—it's actually not a old vineyard um, that he used to farm in Kenwood, right where the old store used to be on Warm Springs. Uh, the the Eric, the Bradley property, Two Creeks. Yeah. Like right there at the big bend on Warm Springs yeah. where it goes into the There was canyon. some Albarino there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we got some cuttings from there and I and so that's um so we we took the cuttings, took them to Old Hills in two thousand and ten, grafted them onto rootstock, uh, grew them up. It's a one acre block and um we started making wine off of it in twenty fifteen. And um it's you know a complete experiment absolutely unique in that there aren't any other wines that are made from those same varietals took five years to get the first vintage off of it and i think i'm still sort of working it out it's been um uh yeah we've been making the wine for six or seven years um i really love the wine now it's it's turned a corner for me we we are having a problem with yields on it because it's dry farm. It's on a particularly um, devigorating site, which means there's very little soil, and without very much water, it really has um, the yields have been very low, like in the under a ton. To in some cases, this year, 2021 was pretty heartbreaking. Um, Honestly, did you expect anything different? No, I didn't expect anything different, but. Um, and I actually installed irrigation this last year on it. Um, and I think I can manage it very um, carefully with very minimum irrigation and, and get the yields up to, you know, one and a half tons or two tons would be nice. And we've had, there's certain years where we'll do better than that even. But um, that's a good point. No, I didn't expect more. But now that I like the wine a lot, I kind of want more of it. So. <laughs> that I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Brian's glass is empty. Right. Oh, yeah. This is, <laughs> yeah, this is sweet stuff, man. Yeah. I got a couple questions. Number one, um, where did you get the claret from? And number two, what is it you love about Malvasia that, um, you know, that speaks to you? The claret came from Old Hill. So that was it's in the vineyard. One of the 35. Yeah, it's one of the 35. So it's, it's there. Holy shit. Yeah. Surprising. Um, and we'll talk in more detail about those, but yes, that's, there's old claret vines in there. And then, um, the Malvasia, why do I love it? It's the aroma profile. It's just this very pretty, um, you know, what's terpene sort of driven 
Gerberge demeanor style, but 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 more pear and apple. Mm-hmm. It's just a delicious eating grape. You know, I, it, when I love a grape, it's because I love eating it. We'll see where it goes when you make wine out of it. Um, but it is in the in this blend, it's you know a small part of it. We, we really kept the the high aromatic profile whites down in the ten or fifteen percent. In twenty twenty two, it turns out um, I've already known this, but great, but deer have a particular preference for certain <laughs> varieties, and they love muscat. So the muscats have been so damaged by deer that they really don't make an appearance in the wine in the, in the way that they were meant to. But um, that's, that's interesting that they have a preference. They oh, love they sure. love muscat and they Being love a. petite syrah. Well, and in some ways, you know, that's the uh, that's your share to the deer, right? I mean, you have a un, you, you live in. We talked about this wildlife corridor. You yeah. live and farm in this wildlife corridor. So maybe you should just plant muscat all around everywhere and keep the deer out of the middle of the vineyard. Just <laughs> a border. Yeah, just a, a border of muscat and petite syrah and roses. Well, and that's that's what they do up in Oakmont. You know, they people all the deer go up there and and eat their gardens and their flowers and stuff so they plant rosemary as like a hedge around their stuff because the deer don't rosemary and lavender um or you could plant you got pink lady grapes up there too which are right you mean the lady fingers is it lady fingers yeah i think that i mean uh, that's their their uh nickname but you're referring to they're really sour old um table grape that was commonly planted in field blends and field blends of our era there are almost always table grapes there's a few commonalities about these field blends zinfandel usually in them alicante usually in them and table grapes and the table grapes are these old varieties that are very beautiful to look at yeah and they also were almost always planted near the table in this case the house was in other words near the house so they um was that because they're pretty to look at? So you think they like think looking they out their window? Yeah. No, that's what they uh, ate. Um, anyway, I don't particularly care. But you they're grab, beautiful to you look grab at. grapes yeah. when you go out and get a chicken. I mean, that's dinner, and, you know, exactly. You know, that's it. <laughs> Miguel, who helps Will in the farming out there. Uh, Miguel, who, who tolerates Will. Who tolerates Will barely. Um, <laughs> you should see what he says in the group text. Um, <laughs> uh, he always slips a little bit of table grape cuttings probably from Old Hill into vineyards that he's managing the planting of. So when we when we pick the uh, uh, Rossi whites, there's, we know, you know, on the, the heritage side of the vineyard, um, there's a half a dozen of these different flavors of table grapes, and one of them that, like, tastes like mangoes. And, wow. and at the, you know, we, we go through, you pick them, and you stash them in the tractor, and at the end of the pick, everybody... Passes them out. That's the, like the greatest high sugar, quick f- snack uh, to you know, keep powering through. I mean, that's you know, it's, it's how you get through harvesting and farming out there, is you, you know, especially in the dry farm. Yeah, the area. table grapes are um, definitely part of the fuel. Yeah. Well, and it's amazing because what you buy at the store and what you buy at the farmers market here is two different things. Completely. They don't compare. Um, we <laughs> actually have a a. Um, one um, Thompson seedless in the vineyard, and it um, produces these berries that are about half the size of Zinfandel berries. They're tiny, and they're really delicious. I mean, it and it's, puts it's a to white shame. grape, right? It's white. Yeah, yeah Thompson yeah. seedless is what used to be in the stores. I think now right. it's flamed yeah, okay or whatever. Right. But they're, you know, if you eat them in the store, they're 
big and because they, they grow whatever technically they put hormones on the vines to get them to to get big and they're Terrific. really pulpy and they they're delicious but they're not sweet right and these ones are really quite different and um they don't have seeds in them either and well, it's they weird. don't. Why would that be in the in the farmers market right. ones? Don't last at all. Uh, they're a day or two, and they're gone. Uh, the ones you get at the market, industrial grapes, that they're around for a couple weeks. So, I want to just throw out to our listeners that if you want to follow along, check out um, the website at. Uh, buckzin.com b-u-c-k-z-i-n.com um, and on Instagram your what is it? Will Buckzin Will Buckzin at Will Buckzin um, it's a great follow I will say that yes. um, and speaking of Zinfandel should we jump right into the Bambino next? sure um, in 2000 uh, about 2000, 1999, we started planting or replanting. There's a, there's a we'll bunch of history we're kind of skipping over. So yeah, I mean, uh, when do you want to go? To, you know, um, all the way back. Should we go all the way back? William Hill. Sure. William, do the do the <laughs> do the William Hill the William Hill, Hill to to Will William Buckland. Well, in, synopsis in, and 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 you did work at Kenwood. I did. And what year was that? Just um, eighty-three. Okay, I'm going to ask you for a good Kenwood story before the day's over. Well, I, I have a so. couple, but um. yeah. <laughs> well, I do like on Instagram. You are um, dry farming curmudgeon. Dry, yeah, dry perfect. farming curmudgeon. That's uh, somewhat apt. Dry farming um, curmudgeon with a dry sense of humor. <clears throat> this, I, okay, so this is at the Swiss Hotel right now, right? It is. On the uh, uh, by the glass and the EDK right and, and so so we go in and, the and it's by the glass and I just buy the bottle for to have with dinner it's the best red wine on the list. The one you you've had is the 2018 I bet. This is this is the 2019 and I think I'm very happy with the 2019. Yum yum. Whoa. The famous. He almost, he almost slowed down. <laughs> he didn't run anybody over. He tried. Yeah. It's only because there was nobody there. <laughs> I just like this concept of the field blend. So do I. Mean, I. It's just, you know, it's what's out there. Put together, makes magic. Really nice wine. Okay. As I switch into gears here to talk about William McPherson Hill, I always want to remember that there were people here before him. Mm. Um, so they weren't into agriculture as much that I know of. But um, Hill moved to California in 1848. 1849, he came from Philadelphia, took a boat, took him six months. He went around Cape Horn, landed in San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco was growing at something, this gold brush started growing at something like 20% a month. He started a um, store and made money, apparently, and then he moved to Sonoma in 1852. He founded uh, Hill Ranch which was a rather extravagant large ranch. He purchased the land from General Vallejo, and um, he was really the first grape grower in Sonoma Valley. Um, his origin- Pre-Hairst. Uh, yeah, quite a bit. Okay. Um, they were contemporaries, but he was um, uh, from, and I'm going to 
pass over that a little bit because I don't remember all the details of the history and who's where. I, I, um, and you know, we just make it up as we go along anyway. So, well, that's isn't that what history is? Yeah. Okay. A series of agreed upon lies. Yeah. To to the victors um, <laughs> goes history. So anyway, he was um, recorded as, as one of his um, little tidbits that I dug up was he was selling. So he was growing f- produce for San Francisco, considered that there was no agriculture in the state. There was a huge population and a need for food. He was um, selling peaches in 1856 for $2 a piece in San Francisco. Wow. What inflation. Right. <laughs> but isn't that weird to think about California not having, like, produce? Because we're supplying currently, like, I don't know, 70 to 80% of the United States. But at that time, to have all this this influx of people, but not to have anything for them to eat. Talk about no infrastructure. What is that in? Have, have you done? I'm sure you do. Have you have like the mental math on what I could make it up for you? A two dollar peach would be <laughs> in 2021 dollars. Forty two fifty. Make it up. Forty two fifty. That's good. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was two thousand dollars though. <laughs> that was in two thousand. Um, he he planted Zinfandel in 1856. Don't know where he got the cuttings, don't know where they came from, but that's uh, recorded. Uh, they called it Zinefindel. He won a bunch of awards um, over the years, Was is credited in um, Charles Sullivan, a wine historian, as being really the first famous Zinfandel produced in the state where people really started to take notice of it and started to want to plant it. There was a, not, a lot of other stories, and if you talk to Joel Peterson, there's other, certainly other um, people that were producing uh, Zinfandels. <coughs> so, um, Hill sold most of his land to the state for the development center, which developmental center, which we were talking about um, at the beginning of the podcast. That's the the, the large, two thousand acre uh, former. Um, what was originally called the home for the feeble-minded. And it turns out a lot of people were incarcerated for adultery and things like that there, so uh, especially women. Um, It doesn't have the... It has a sordid history, doesn't it? It has a sordid history. It's it's, it's, it's a super fun site of of ghosts. And and it could very well be. Yeah, really. I don't build a house. I don't don't However, I I, I defend it. Um, I loved being living next to it it was um and it's been closed for two years now and that's what we've been talking about earlier but uh being there and seeing the activity and how well it appeared that people were cared for and um it was uh we have we really missed the clients they were really a part of our day-to-day you know walks and they're no it's very quiet and it's a little depressing now it is it, it's it's haunting it is a little haunting those yeah old you know those buildings of especially the almost more for me the ones that are the contemporary construction are like the you know 60s 70s like you know civic we buildings. call it russian contemporary russian contemporary <laughs> yeah. exactly as opposed to like you know there's the old creepy brick building you know main admin but those ones that are like of that era, the seven, you know, they're pretty, era. yeah, they're sort of cement, um, yeah. yeah, not very, they're weird, very it's cold, weird. very, very, very cold. cold. They yeah. decided that they decided not to spend the money because some of the original buildings are very attractive yeah. and, and they are uh, sort of a Dutch 
architectural mm -hmm. design. Um, and then they all have tile roofs, beautiful tile roofs, very California mission-y, um, lots of Well, lots what's of things to in like that big building? Any, what's, it, what's in that big building? The big building Anything has been condemned. It's, it hasn't actually been entered. They had a, this is, as I understand it, they had a leak in the basement, and then it went on for years. So, um, the, so that means that the water was, you know, infiltrated everything. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's 120-year-old facility with infrastructure that is, you know, been maintained. It's like my condo in Chicago, man. There is no... Leaking 120 years old. <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, deferred maintenance. Anyhow, Hill um, stayed on the ranch. So, the, so the, where we live is sort of the last, what was the remaining 40 acres of land that he hadn't sold. He lived there. His son ended up living there. His son managed the ranch, the, the developmental center ranch. Um, but he lived on the ranch, presumably through prohibition. Um, then the land changed ownership. The hills have quite a big um, history. There's uh, his family I have come to know quite well. Different parts of their family went up north to uh, Washington State. But um, really a big and I I really love the Hill family. They're really, um, I've met different sides of them. I've become sort of the lightning rod for the Hills. It's funny. Uh, and they love, of course, the fact that we love the history of the ranch. Um, William's grave is in the Sonoma graveyard here. Cemetery. Yeah, one of the older ones in the place. Um, anyhow, so the land changed hands several times in, uh, and I don't know the history during the, probably 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, until it was purchased by a woman named Carol Bowen. She um, had an eclectic group of people living there. She, um, I know lots of stories that I won't get into detail on, but um, the one that's worth mentioning is, is the video that we've been talking about. Um, uh, a gentleman named Paul Brisset gave me this video a couple of years ago that his brother made. The video is um, a home ver home video version uh, made in 1972 of... We think. Of, we think. We think it's 72. Okay. Uh, that is of um, winemaking off of the ranch. So there's a whole sort of scenario of picking and, and, and then winemaking and then this big party and, uh, and then it sort of closes on this beautiful sunset on Old Hill Ranch. That was um, some notable winemakers. You can get your glasses ready. Um, so, um, uh, Mr. Olds of, um, Sky Ranch was, um, in this video, the Brisset family, um, Martin, I, I believe, uh, Martinelli, um, and, um, um, help me out, Sam. Joe Miami. Oh, Joe Miami, of course. Uh, Arden Katuri. Supposedly, maybe, debatably. <laughs> debatably, she denies it completely. Um. Anyway, and, and then a bunch of people we don't know, and I would love to know who they are because it's, it's quite a, a wonderful little panorama of people um, in Sonoma Valley back in the 70s. It, it was pretty sure it was 72. And for those of you listening at home, the stipulation basically with this video is not to publish it. That was, that was the, 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 uh, the family that made it did not want it published so so you have to come visit. you have to come see us and we'll show it to you yeah. on our phones i have it i have it in like three sections 
um, because that's how you could. It's too big to text, right? It'd, it'd break it the, up. The the point of part of that story is that the wine that the vineyard was coveted even then. Um, right. Starting in in about '72, I can list. You can get your glasses ready again. All the different <laughs> winemakers that were making wine off of um, Old Hill Ranch. So we have Sky Ranch. It went to um, Mary Edwards. It went to um, uh, Rudon Smith down in Santa Cruz, which is still a winery today, but was quite notable back in the day. It went to Mount Eden. Um, it went to um, Topolos, Russian River Winery. Wow. Wow, then it, it, hey, 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 hey. I'm a Topolos wow. fan. Um, and then it went to... Um, so Mike Topolos, uh, who had... I think had um, received, uh, he, he was going to buy Rossi fruit and he had to give up Old Hill. And that's why, um, that's how he got in wait a minute, you guys, come on, oh, Rossi. Right. <laughs> and then... Um, we, it could, we talk about it a lot. We'll I think it's, we're, we're, we're a little like desensitized on the... <laughs> Thanks for... I hope Rossi all the time, so <laughs> keep it going. <laughs> Uh, and so that gave Joel Peterson um, opportunity, and Joel had had started. Uh, this is 1982 now. Oh wait. So um, Joel. Joel Peterson at Ravenswood. Who had, never had never heard founded of Ravenswood around 1980. <laughs> the date keeps changing. I don't know when, but um, <laughs> anyway, he started making wine off of Old Hill Ranch, and that uh, relationship continued all the way through 2020 or 19. I can tell you the first Old Hill Zen I had was a Ravenswood. The Sonoma County Harvest Fair, 1986. I got asked to go to it last minute for the, you know, the, um, the awards a, night. Fill a table? Uh, no, the awards night. You just walk around tasting. Okay. And I had no idea, but I remember going to Ravenswood because someone said, you got to taste all those wines. And they were pouring that wine, and it just left a fist in my face about I'm gonna go grab how good it was. Um, I believe it is the longest-running single vineyard desert wine made in California. Which is pretty big deal. Wow. Yeah. Wait, how long would that be? Seventy-one. Jesus. But it could be wrong, and somebody will ha- let us know if I am. We have podcast yeah. listeners who routinely, mostly me, correct, but send in <laughs> emails and go, "No, that's that's bullshit." Here's the truth. So we'll find out. Yes, we'll find we, out. We've all been called. That's good. That's yeah. a good way to find out. Let's put it out there. Um, so anyway, then let me just, uh, I'm sorry. No, no it's your podcast. You'd... No, I was going to say, I, we had a little dead air. I was just trying to fill it. If you have something to say, go for it, Will. All right. Um, I think I skipped over the most important part, which is that in 1980, um, the my stepfather had been farming in Sonoma Valley since the late 60s. Um, he had a ranch across the highway from... Um, Old Hill Ranch that was um, is still today a uh, flower and vegetable farm. Otto was his name. His um, Otto Teller. His uh, was he was a gentleman farmer, and um, he married my mother. Um, it was her second marriage. His second marriage uh, in 1976. Anyway, um, across the road from their farm was this sign that was for sale by owner. And according to lore, it would been been posted for some time, like years. And my mother said, Otto, 
she was he was kicking around causing trouble and said go over there and check that place out so he did and he came back with the deed um <laughs> uh he was super enamored with uh the dry farming so he was a little critical of the wine industry in general he felt that that the vin- this the valley was a little over being overwhelmed by vineyards and and wells and irrigation and he so, so and there was, was no in, grape growing ever done on the, the east side of the highway no okay. not that we know not, not that we know of but um it's all been food food and flowers anyhow was uh, that part of the original william hill land holding no no, no the, the 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 ranch that exists today was the southeast corner of his original holding so everything right. stretched Every, up towards so sonoma mountain yeah. he sold land to um jack london right i was gonna say um is at some point. So he owned basically, that's probably the corner to corner from Old Hill Ranch to somewhere up like London Ranch would make, that's a pretty good thousand acres. Pretty, pretty good, pretty good, two I think. It was, <laughs> two yeah, thousand acres. and who knows yeah. uh, if they even know how to, whatever. If they could have cut right, what was 19, 1850 acreage counting like? No drones. <laughs> no drones. <laughs> anyway, Otto um, loves to tell stories, and one of his favorite stories was uh, he had a bunch of, and he uses the words very, um, derogatorily bunch of davis consultants come and look at it ouch and uh, he said uh, they said rip it out it's worthless vineyard's worthless get it out of here so he didn't uh, thank god and um, i wonder why they had that attitude instantaneously well i think any rational person would probably agree it was worthless in the sense that it was ne- it never penciled out financially for auto right. he was a labor of love the yields in those days were under a ton in some cases as low as a quarter ton to the acre. I mean, we got paid top dollar, like $250 a ton. Wow. Um, and it just, you know, you're not going to pencil out um, to make it work. So um, that's why they said it. And it seems like a pretty reasonable thing. But fortunately, he didn't, and he could afford to, to keep it, and he understood the value of it. He loved it. He was, you know, sort of his feather in his cap uh, that he got to... <laughs> keep that vineyard alive anyhow um so he was he worked he he became uh he you know he sold grapes to joel and then joel made wine off of it for um at least 20 some odd years before his company was sold to constellation and in the 90s it was and this is again we can ask somebody to correct me on this but i did went back and looked at all the robert parker and wine spectator reviews in the 1990s and it was the highest rated zinfandel um it actually wasn't really a zin but um we call it that wait 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 i know um the reason is is because it's a field blend right and we did nobody really understood that then um it just seemed like it was zinfandel and what is the percentage of zinfandel I mean, I, you've mapped it pretty much vine to vine at this point, trying to the ones you don't know what variety they are. So it is. Um, so it's complicated because it it may it may be sixty percent zin, and it may be sixty five, which is really what the number of vines is about sixty seven, sixty five. But Grenache makes up fifteen percent, and Grenache is a much heavier producer than right. Zinfandel. So proportionally. It doesn't quite add up, although it doesn't matter. Um, it's just yeah. it's yeah. just something. I mean, I used to perseverate on that kind of stuff, but and and I used to label our wine as Zinfandel, which meant we'd harvest it separately. We'd harvest the Zin separately. The, that was those the first time I ever 
picked out there yeah. was you and Miguel leading the rows and <laughs> telling everybody what that one, what vine that one. you can pick and what vine you couldn't pick. The first year we did that, um, we had a another enterprise employee, Diego, mm-hmm. um, and we were trying to figure out how, what was what. We're going to digress here. No, no, I'm just going to bite my tongue. Keep going. <laughs> anyway, I'll never forget. Diego was tasting the grapes, and and we're because we got so confused, we didn't know. We it just it's crazy. It was the first year where I was there. I didn't. I could barely tell Zin from Grenache, which now they could do it a mile away. But um, it doesn't look like Pinot. Anyway, Diego's tasting the grapes, and he's like, "That one's Zin. That one's that one's not Zin. That one's Zin." And then the next thing I see, Diego's just projectile vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> through the vineyard and then we went okay we got to come up with a better system <laughs> better than this plan. <laughs> yeah anyhow yes we did that and that was constellations um requirement so that they could label their wine as zinfandel because they don't know how to sell zin they don't know how to sell field wait a minute so that wasn't you just being the legend of you that was constellations demand we had this really weird relationship so when i left my job at at, at king estate um after i'd given notice uh I um, I bothered I bothered to reach the read the contract, um, and it turns out that we didn't have rights to our own fruit. That you know that had been there was a three year evergreen, so um, it would, I'd have to now quit my job, and now I have to wait three years before I can buy my fruit. So we went to Joel and said um, we'd really like to split this vineyard with you, um, and that way we could continue selling your group your fruit beyond Wait, the three what year years. Was this? this is nine, 2000, okay. 1999. And so we came up with this contract, which is kind of crazy. It went on in perpetuity, but we had to split the grapes evenly. Now it's a field blend, and that's pretty hard to do. So we came up with this. <laughs> we came up with this thing where, and this is uh, um, our legacy to to um, Enterprise Vineyards. So whenever we'd fill a bin, we'd fill the bins um, simultaneously. One bin being, uh, well, actually not designated. We would take the bins after harvest and we'd line them up each one. We'd put two bins on a trailer. They'd each get filled up simultaneously. They'd get offloaded and each bin put in a separate row. Then we'd flip a coin and that's the uh, and then whoever won would get that <laughs> row. Um, and that's how Ravenswood wanted to do it to make sure that it was as homogenous. Um, we don't do that anymore. We now um, have <laughs> the rows God. marked and we harvest them separately, which is a much better system um, by far. Yeah. I kind of like that old system. I, I mean, like the, I like truth be told, flip. truth be told, we there's still places that, you know, and they're not, it's not because they're like the complicated old hill field blends just because of whatever the relationship is. And it usually ends up being 16600 and probably like the vineyard owner. Um, we still do picks like that where... You're sort of trying to simultaneously fill the two bins on the trailer, and you know the one in the front goes to one client, and the one in the back goes to another client. It's a, it's a, you know, Enterprise Vineyards' motto is how can we do this job and more complicated. (laughs) There are certain uh, parts of it that I liked, but um, but it was a it was a challenge for me because I recognize that I want to tell the story of the vineyard in the wine, and so segue um the best way to do that is to is to pick everything together 
That's obviously what was intended to be. There's no reason that you would plant a field blend and then go out and selectively yeah. harvest one varietal. So we um, really have uh, now um, changed our relationships with our buyers. So Old Hill Ranch um, is where I live. I manage the vineyard with Phil and Enterprise Vineyards and Reuben. And, um, and then we sell grapes to Bedrock. We sell grapes to Once in Future, which is Joel's new project. And we sell grapes to Carlisle. And we don't sell grapes to Constellation. Um, and there's some, uh, and it's, it's wonderful. Can <laughs> I won't now. Um, can you speak a little bit? So we've poured the Bambino from 2019. Now we're on to the 19 Ancient. Correct. Is that correct. So can you speak a little bit to um, how you go about keeping these? You know, are, are these two different? Is the Bambino a, it's a, different. a, a, a different block? Yeah. Yeah. So in 2000, we planted. Um, some new blocks there had been a few horse fields on the vineyard and so we converted them into vineyard and those were planted as um uh blocks of varietals so they're not field blends technically but they are different varietals so we have a block of alicante boucher a block of petite Syrah, and two blocks of zinfandel and the whole accumulated acreage is about seven or eight acres um the idea for planting those was Constellation wanted more fruit. And when I started making wine, I didn't feel like making, blending those two blocks together, or the, the ancient and the and the young vines together was going to really um, help my my ancient. Um, as we all, who, those of us who believe and farm old vines, believe that they are superior uh, uh, quant quality, the wine. So I made... A new label and I called it Bambino so that's a reference to the vine age ancient reference to the vine age I do like to point out the Bambino now is an adult it is 21 years old yeah. um, and it's the certainly Bambino's old enough to drink itself it is definitely old enough to drink itself um, thank God it doesn't uh, so yeah that's the that's the two different wines and that's and, and so they're Bambino is not technically a field blend but I'm always co-fermenting i always find a way to find a we have the zinfandel site is uh, for the bambinos is has a lot of different exposures different soil elevations and um so that means that there's a lot of different spots that ripen at different times so i can find ways to co-ferment um the the zinfandel with the alicante or the um or the petite sera and um that's our biggest production we and we're not a very big winery we make 2,000 cases total the Bambino is about half of that. Um, so that's our biggest production wine. And I'm peeking over your shoulder. I noticed there is, I don't see any auto Grenache. It's over there. It's, it's over there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just, you gotta fix the, pres fix the prescription. All right. All right. So speaking I'm, of which, I'm in. We, we didn't have a chance to, sorry to digress, Will. <laughs> what year was the photo of you that is on the cover of the Wine Business Monthly? Because I, I, I don't, uh, speaking of, I think you were probably younger than the Bambino Vines. No. <laughs> so that shows you what the restaurant business does to you. That is, that is from, so it's, that was from the day of my wedding, which means it was 
thir- 14 years ago. Better get that right. 14 years ago. On the off chance Maria listens. Yeah, no, she doesn't. Yeah, thank but you. that was 14 years ago, and that was a picture of me. Yeah, yeah, at the wedding, and I think yeah. I think that's why you have that. You have like have, a collarless suit, and I have no idea tuxedo. where they got it from. The only place that picture has ever been posted was on Sandra Bernstein's either that's Girl in the Fig it. or Estate. Um, sure if you went on the website, it would say like, you, there was a thing that said like uh, who the managers were or something, and you could go on it and had a, like a little bio of the managers, and that was the picture that she used for that. So that's the only... Okay. I mean, that, that picture's not out there. I, no, that's, that was... They at first we're, at first we're like, oh, Brian, how come <laughs> how come they didn't use a picture of Brian? That's weird. Oh, oh wait, no. Well, that's Brian. Yeah. <laughs> you got a full head of hair, man. Hey, well, and... I mean, you still have a full head of hair. You just wore it differently. <laughs> Bart, yours was really good, too, though. I thought. Yeah, well, mine's probably 12 years old, so... Um, yeah. But you look studious. You're examining the glass. He was more studious. I didn't understand. Is there actually a? I thought that was just an Instagram. Post. No, no, no. That's I thought a, someone photoshopped the, that. We're, we're the, actually we're on, on the cover, cover of, of One Business Monthly. Business Monthly. Business Monthly. Yeah. yeah. I gotta go down and pick up some copy. Give myself a ding. Yeah. <laughs> ding yourself. <laughs> Sorry, Will. No worries. <laughs> I love talking about other people. <laughs> hey, Will. We're influenced. No, not influenced. We're leaders. 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 In industry, 2021 industry leaders, yes. We're, we're <laughs> emphasis, the on the le- emphasis on the lees. We're the shit at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Leasters. Influencers. Yeah. You're influencers. Oh, God. So the ancient. Doesn't that scare you, Will? Um, if we were wearing bikinis and in a pool and, like, Showing right. our bottle shots, that would probably oh, scare him. <laughs> oh, Vine rocks, dude. I tried it at Coachella. Ancient. Ancient, yeah. Ancient vines. Hella old vines. Hella old vines. Hella old. Hella old. Hella old. Hella old. So this is the 2019 this, hella this old. This 2019, so... Um, oh, cash. I don't know what to say about the wine. I'm. Not my, it's good. Not my favorite subject. Um, no. Talking well, about wine, let's but talk more about the prop. I mean, Gosh. you know, in in the in the ancient, let's talk more about the site and the soil and yeah, and, and what really makes it distinct to your piece of property to other, um, you know, old vine blocks in the valley. That's a little complicated for me because I don't have as much. It took me, I don't know. I'm not exact. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating, but it took me a long time to, and I'd say 15 years, to really kind of understand the character of Old Hill. And I probably have a ways to go to really fully grok it. But um, I'll, I remember a tasting I went to with Mike Officer, the owner and winemaker of Carlisle, Ding. Um, anyway, he is a, has a great palate, and he, um, we had like blind tasting, Six wines. I didn't know what was in the tasting. It turns out, by chance, there were three old hills in it. And Mike picked each one of them. Hard to do because you'd expect there to maybe be one. But you kind of got it. He's like, right. The last one, he's like, I almost think this is old hill again. I was so blown away because I didn't get that. And I think I now sort of understand what old hill is about. And the 2019, in my view, more so than the previous vintage, does capture that and that is um and especially in comparison to the bambino bambino has it in a 
smaller way, to me the Bambino exhibits that Zinfandel jammy raspberry um, fruit, whereas the ancient vine is much more brooding. Uh, it has, um, one might call it eucalyptus, but it, it's uh, herbal. It, it's certainly, to me, um, maybe even vegetative sometimes, a little pumpkin-y. Um, it evolves with time, but that's what it seems like when it's young. It, uh, it's worth noting that we, we don't have any eucalyptus trees on the vineyard anymore. We used to have a lot, and over the years we took some out, and then the fires finished that for us. Um, and so it's been almost four or five years since we've had any eucs on the property. Anyway, um, it's taken me a while to sort of figure that out. And it's, uh, you know, there's something called cellar palate. We're all familiar with it. You sort of drink the same wine over and over. You become very enamored with it. I, I think the wine's probably better than that, but um, I just love it. I drink the shit out of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I would say for me that... The, it's about complexity. Like the ancient is just so much more complex than the the Bambino. And the Bambino is just what I love about pure, beautiful Zinfandel. Um, two bits. I think that's fair. And certainly um, one of the things about this vineyard that has been well proven um, is that it ages well. And so... Um, is you that 86 well you had it in 86 but the 86 vintage is singing um, it was you know those days it was harvested earlier most likely the alcohols were lower the acids were higher the climate was cooler so the acids were higher but um, those wines are still drinking beautifully um, not every vintage from that decade but um, going into the 90s there's when I first started I think it was um, in 2000 I bought bunch of 98 or 97 I, uh, actually I think it was 96 and it took a decade for that wine to finally really reveal itself this is Ravenswood's version of it mm -hmm. um, so it, it takes a while the, the, the wines seem more generous from Buckland than, than, than those Ravenswood wines when they're, when they're young um, the, the Ravenswoods just were begging to be they were super tannic and they were begging to be aged and and needed a good 10 years before they really started to be approachable and, well on those on the field blends are there some years where you're you think that some of the varieties are ready but you're kind of waiting for other ones to catch up a little bit it's part of the charms of field blends and and, and maybe one of the things we do is we try to come up with rationales for whatever it was because we don't know nobody wrote down what their rationale was for a field blend and, and one of the challenge or interesting parts I find about Old Hill in the context of field blends so in Snow Valley we've got Rossi we've got um, Bedrock we've got uh, Old Hill we've got um, what's the one in Kenwood Pagani Pagani among others, and um, they all have similarities that there's Zinfandel base, but in Old Hill we have the number two varieties, Grenache. In those other vineyards, there's very little, if any. Is there any Grenache in the old block of Rossi? I don't, not that I know. I don't believe there is, and I don't, I don't know that there is at Bedrock. If there is, it's just a few vines. 
Um, and then the other thing is we have a vine in the vineyard that's relatively populous. It's, it makes up, I don't know how many there are, there are a couple hundred. It's a unknown varietal. It's it's um, has its own DNA marking. Can we just call it unknown. Buck- Buckland? No, we just call it unknown. We can't call it Old Hill. We, just, we can't. We call it Old Hill, I suppose. Yeah. I, I don't suspect it's a variety we're all going to really get excited about, but um, but it's in our vineyard and it's not in any other vineyards. And so you'd think that all these vineyards were sort of sourced from the same cuttings, and uh, and then there's other varieties in the old vine. Old Hill that are from the French Alps that don't show up in other vineyards. It's somewhat surprising. So um, hard to say what the what they were thinking. But here's what we think, and I think it makes sense, or at least we use it to our advantage. The question was, what do you do about the variability in ripeness in a field blend? And the answer is nothing. You utilize it to your advantage. So Grenache is a late ripener in comparison to Zinfandel. Zinfandel usually, when we would harvest separately, we'd always harvest the Zins first, and then we'd come back and harvest the Grenache later. So um, in today's world, we're picking them together, and what we're what the way I see it is we're adding acid. The the Grenache being less ripe is produ- is providing a bump in acidity, and that's a benefit. So, and Zinfandel itself as a as a varietal, as a cluster, has so much variability in in each berry in terms of where it sits um, for ripeness that we just say that's one of the charms of the varietal is that it has that diversity. So, so do you use, use that uh, abundance of Grenache to push the Zinfandel further, knowing you have that sort of natural acidity that you're going to be able to get out of that? And how do you how do you use that to your advantage, as you said? Like, what do you well, it just what are you, are you are you harvesting for Zinfandel ripeness, or uh, you know when you go out there and make the pick, what are you what are your indicators? Ah, uh, when bedrock's picking. <laughs> oh, there's some I smart kids sample. down the street. I don't oh, sample. Wait. I just wait till bedrock's picking, and then we go. Um, it's a lot of it's visual, a lot of it's flavor. Um, you know we. I do sample it and measure the sugar, but it's to the point now where it's just sort of a safety check. Um, the um, and but to, but to answer your question, I sample and look at the zin. That's sort of what because zin, when if it gets hot and it does get hot, it gets super hot. Zin, you know, can really start to shrivel, and and you get just too many raisins, and that impacts raisiny characters on the wine. So when the zin is ready that's when we harvest. If we wait for the Grenache, which doesn't is a thick skin variety and doesn't really shrivel, you might not have any Zin. And, um, and Grenache is funny. It, 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 it sort of hangs out. It doesn't necessarily always get sweeter with time. Um, I think, uh, I love Grenache and I think Grenache is, um, I know you guys love Grenache too. I think Grenache is our, um, <laughs> If, if you it's going to be Snow Valley. It does really well in hot heat. And, and Old Hill, if we didn't mention this earlier, is hot. Yeah. Um, so we um, so the Grenache vines on Old Hill are spectacular, beautiful vines, and they produce wonderful fruit. And um, in fact, we make it, we do a, a selective harvest um, segue again um, of uh, 
Grenache out of the vineyard. We do um, so when we're when we're picking um, the the wine for the different clients, the grapes for the different clients. We leave the Grenache vines in one little spot, and then we harvest that separately. Wait, you're going out of order, Brian. Oh, and start with the ancient. It's too late. It yeah. doesn't matter. I'm going to start with the ancient. Um, Brian was I, I so John. fucking excited. He's like, just going to grab whatever burgundy-shaped bottle I, I can and start pouring. I wanted that Grenache. Ancient Grenache. And so we do, okay. uh, we do that. We also uh, leave some uh, Syrah and some Carignan, some Morvedra, some Zin, some Alicante. So um, it's certainly not a pure um, Grenache. I label it as Grenache, so I'm pretty certain it's more than 75%. Um, in case anybody from the TTB is listening. Like, yeah, right. Very certain that it's <laughs> more than 75%. I'm very certain. I have weight tags to prove it. Um, <laughs> Anyway, it's uh, you know it's pretty amazing to be able to make Grenache from 125-year-old vines, In California. especially using compost and kelp. 50-year-old vines, compost and kelp. Compost and kelp. I don't think I've ever seen that on a label before. Oh, that's on the autos, is it? Yeah, it yeah. is. Well, um, we're big fans. We didn't talk much about farming, but we big fans of compost and kelp. Um, two things that are very helpful in terms of. Um, health in the soil which translates into health in the vine which translates into health in the grape and healthy grapes ferment better and taste better uh, well let's can we spend a couple of minutes talking about yeah, let's farming yeah. and, and in particular you know the farming the, the farming, farming. I mean, apparently that's where grapes come from right um, <laughs> we've heard and and in particular um, dry farming and, and sort of how it you know the, you talk about with the whites and maybe you've you've added some irrigation like how do you see dry farming uh in a warming climate in a warming may, climate and, and how are you you know and how to maybe the way that you farm be influenced by that well i don't know the answer necessarily but um i think about it a lot and the um the whole, the concept, the thing I wanted to do, this, again, I go back to when I started and then sort of how I um, changed over time. I didn't really come on to Old Hill Ranch thinking about dry farming that much. Although I would, I would mention that Otto was adamant about dry farming. So as somebody who was, you know, trying to, to live out his, or keep his legacy alive, I certainly wasn't interested in irrigation although the bambino had been started with irrigation so i in about and i'm i'm just guessing but about 2010 or 2012 i um decided i wanted to have everything on old hill to be dry farmed so um dry farming it's worth discussing what that is i mean it in its simplest form you might say it's the absence of irrigation um and it certainly is that but it's to me it's a lot more than that so um, one of the, and then you might ask why you'd want to dry farm and, and um, there's lots of different reasons for it. I uh, believe that in our ranch anyway, we take, we have a well, it's a beautiful well. It produces 60 gallons a minute of crystal clear, blue, delicious water. Um, and we use it 
we live, you know, we have to take showers and we have uh, a garden and we have, uh, we, we are, um, and we have some, some blocks of vines that we use it on. But, um, but old, but Sonoma Valley used to be wetlands. It used to all, you know, from Kenwood down to uh, Glen Ellen was, they, to get from, uh, to get to Santa Rosa, you had to go up on the mountains. You couldn't get through the valley because it was all wet. All these creeks used to run full time. The Butler Creek, which runs through our property, so beautiful right now because it has rained 15, 16 inches, is full of water. But that used to run year round. And as we, as farmers, keep harvesting water out of the ground, we're lowering the water table and these creeks stop running. That's just what happens. It's natural. It's happened all over the world. Um, so dry farming is one way to at least use less water. And um, that's one reason we do it. Another reason we do it is we think it makes better wine. And um, I want to be careful because it makes different wine. It's not necessarily better, but it makes different wine. You don't have to be careful just because there's an enterprise. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I, I, I believe that. I think yeah. it's, you know, there's plenty of irrigated w wines that I love. It's not, um, it, it, it depends on circumstance. I do think, especially in the ancient as we taste it, that a lot of that character is 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 revealed because of the fact that it is dry farmed um, and that if you irrigate it you end up with more of a bambino style wine which is going to be a little fruitier and, and certainly nothing to turn your nose up at but um, but not one that you sit with as long and and um, anyhow um, but dr so dry farming what does it do in terms of the grapes it tends to and this all depends on where the dry farming is occurring because if you're having to do it in a wet area it won't do this but in our area which is dry we don't get rain after april or may um, and we don't get um, rain until october so it's really dry and we sometimes get fog and fog is really important because vines can harvest the moisture off off the um, off the fog so that's a big deal in terms of dry farming somebody was asking me the other day if they could do it and they live on the coast and they have june gloom and it makes perfect sense that they'd have um, the uh, it'd be an appropriate place to do it. And then, of course, a really important detail is rootstock. Really inside baseball, but um, something that is, um, you can't dry farm if you have the wrong rootstock. And, um, of course, our vineyard um, was planted on the right rootstock because they intended it to be dry farmed 150 years ago, and that rootstock is St. George. And we really have... We ding St. George. Yeah, for sure. We can, for drink, sure. We can ding it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and St. George is uh, pretty much everything we've planted subsequently um, uh, has been on St. George and that helps us. St. George is a, a vigorous rootstock. It has a very deep root system um, and that's why it works for dry farming. It has other problems associated with that make farming perhaps difficult but um, but it has worked for 150 years. Why not continue with it? Um, Phil and I have this conversation a lot. He has a lot of good ideas on trying other rootstocks, and I and I go home and I think about it, and then I always wake up in the morning and go, "Fuck that! <laughs> We're sticking with St. George. It works." Will, do you have any idea how deep those roots go? I don't. I mean, I, I know that I've dug a hole 12 feet deep, and there were roots in it um, down that deep. Uh, I suspect they go quite a bit deeper, and there's some anecdotal evidence that vines go really deep because people have dug wine caves. They dig a hole in a hillside and then they look up and they go what are those roots doing 40 feet below the surface and i don't I, i'm throwing 40 feet out there but i've heard anecdotally that much yeah um but is that true i don't know uh, we don't let the truth get in the way of a good story we know that 
Marketing 101. Right. <clears throat> well, there's there's 40 feet of soil at Bedrock. I mean, at, uh, at Old Hill. In places. Before you hit Bedrock. In places. Uh, absolutely, there are places. But the, but the whites and the autos block, which we'll get to later, are on very shallow soils. Um, Those are sort of like the ridges that surround the, the main vineyard? It's, or? it's just Sonoma, and Sonoma has, it's so volcanic, and, and I mean, in the old block of Old Hill Ranch, there are two distinct soil types, and there are some areas where there are shallow soils too, so soil type is different than, because shallowness in a vineyard, shallow soil is probably more relevant, I think, in terms of how a, a vine performs and how it the grapes taste than just the actual soil that it's grown in but if you have access to deep soils then the soil type makes a big difference and um, most of the soils in the ancient block are alluvial um, as I understand it uh, the Mayakama mountain range is a fairly young actually remarkably young mountain range uh, uplifted um, and originally the soils were pretty uniform between Napa and Sonoma and then the Mayakama sort of deposited those those soils on uh, into Old Hill. But then there's all this volcanic activity. So we have all these really high magnesium soils, too, that are um, super different. They're boot-sucking mud. Um, really, uh, uh, and, and, and if you walk from the ancient block to the Bambino block, within 10 feet, you see that change. You can see it. It's from brown to red. Um, so there, there was an old, I ha, and I have it somewhere, old connoisseur's guide um, uh, wine paper that talked about the moguls of Glen Ellen. And they talked about from Kenwood down to Madrone Road, or just past Madrone Road, how it was a series of undulations, you know, ups and downs, essentially moguls. Um, and talking about the diversity of the soils to be in that. I mean, would you concur that that is exactly what it is? Like, d- depending on just if you're high up on a on a on a mogul so to speak i'm so uh, it's cool to hear that because again these things these things reveal themselves over time it's not like you walk into a place and see everything at once i was standing up so i would say yes that is very relevant when we're talking about the white and the autos block which we'll get to Uh, it's not that relevant in the ancient block which is valley floor and flat and uniform except with a few variations but the if you stand up and so the white mixed whites is it sits atop this mogul it's exactly what it is i've always called it a hill um but it it's a perfect thing to call it and it's um i don't know 50 feet tall and it's perfectly circum you know whatever that is it's round um and if you stand on it and you look north and the fire has actually revealed this because all of a sudden we had Oh, uh, we could the see way. the see the contours, and you just see those these little moguls going up the valley, yeah. and I believe them to all be um, volcanic in nature. They they have under ours is a uh, volcanic tuff. It's basically ash and rock conglomerate, and it's super shallow. So um, there is maybe three to four, four between four and two feet of. I mean, the the ripper can't go down more than two feet in certain parts of it before they hit this, what I would consider to be impermeable um, sub, uh, whatever it is, ash. And then um, the other thing is that we have, we still have active volcanic activity in the valley. So there's pockets of warmth. I know that um, 
And I know this from talking to our well drillers, and they're like, yeah, we've got, there's wells here that produce water that's hot. not hot, but but the te- temperature's elevated. It's more than it should be if it wasn't warm. Down Look below. at Agua you know, Caliente Pool. Right. Agua Caliente, right. Warm Springs. Yeah. Well, uh, when, no. when the Cundies, when the Cundies dug their caves, um, oh, they were right. they were abnormally warm, and they had to put air conditioning what into their bummer. caves um, because <laughs> of that, that. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. What a freaking bummer! And and, All I and they also were the first ones to have to put sprinkler system into. Well, their if cave. they could figure out how to run the AC off the geothermal from the hot of their caves, then maybe we'd have something. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, that's very interesting. That you, s- I'd like to see that article uh, in the I'll, connoisseurs. I'll, I'll get you a copy. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, because if I saw that, I, when you first said it, I was thinking that it had to do with water flowing across the land that that when it then started to dissipate, that it would make these own, the, like, you know, little channels. And so it was creating those moguls. But you're saying it's coming from, from I underneath. I honestly don't know the, the geolo- geological ra- reason for them being there. But they all s- seem so perfectly formed. Yeah. And and uniform, not uniform in size, but uniform in their shape. Right. Um, yeah, and, and you know, if you just think about like driving down Highway 12, looking to the right or the left, it is. It's there's there's all sorts of little, for lack of a better term, moguls. I mean, Lassiter's got that same thing. Kind of sits up. You kind of go up, and then it drops down and mm-hmm. comes back up again. Well, um, the biggest mogul in the middle of the valley is the regional park, right? Right. I mean, it's kind of just another one of these rolling rolling. Big hills. Yeah. Right. Bigger, what did they do to fill in Kenwood and the area? Did well, they, they sucked the water out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's still a wetlands there. It's it's um. Yeah. It's right. It's part of um. What's right next to the restaurant there? Deerfield. Deerfield. Thank Deerfield. You. Yeah. 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 And and That's going back down there. Septic issues there. Right. Don't but tell me. Can I try the ancient? But they keep getting bigger. Oh, of course. Well, I just wonder because the city is built on um, landfill, and I wondered if they which, used which city San Francisco. Oh, that city. Yeah, and it's a, a lot of cities are quite frankly. I mean, Chicago is good and, use of landfill. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the ancient Grenache, to me, is more an Old Hill wine than a Grenache wine. It's more. It has more characteristic in common, I think, with the ancient period. If you put the two of them together, you'd think that before you thought Grenache. It's not that it's not Grenache-like, it's, but it is so of that site. The twenty, the first year I made it, two thousand and six, I made a barrel of it, and it was so dark in color. Which is un-Grenache-like. Un-Grenache-like that I decided that. We had made a mistake and we'd picked Alicante. <laughs> so I put it back to the ancient blend and then we picked it again in 2007 and it was still dark. It wasn't as dark as it was the year before, but it tends to make a very dark Grenache. And the other thing, um, in 2007, it, it really had that sarsapar- it had a sarsaparilla character to it, which to me is a very kind of roan. The, the combi black licorice. Right. Yeah, the black licorice. And I, I was thinking cola, but it's not cola. It's sarsaparilla. Sarsaparilla. That's, that's I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm standing in Bill's drive-in at the corner of Grove and Arnold Drive right now getting one of those sarsaparillas. But, you know, 
Buffalo Bill Sarsaparilla from Bill's Drive-In. That's 1987. Yeah. All right. Had a moment. Yeah. Okay. Back. Yeah. That's back all right. I'm, I got you. Right. Got you walking by the guys outside having beers on playing, the bench. And playing dice. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> all right. Weird Sonoma flashback. The other thing that one might notice when tasting this wine is it has a lot of heft. Mm-hmm. Tannin. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is the 19 we have? 19, yeah. Which was a um, funny story. So um, one vine in particular, in the, in the well, 2019 was our biggest yield ever. Massive three tons to the acre. Across the... We're box. being a little sarcastic. Yeah. Um, and then in 20... Slightly sarcastic. 20, um, 21 was our lowest yield on record. And um, in 2019, one particular Grenache vine, it's one of the more uh, sturdy, big, beautiful vines, um, it had a lot of fruit on it. And so I thought it would be kind of interesting to harvest it separately and then weigh it just to see what it was. <laughs> and we cal- and so we calculated that if all the vines had had that much w- weight on them, it would have been somewhere around 20 tons of the acre. <laughs> <laughs> So that gives you an idea of what Grenache can do. Uh, 20, you know, 2019 was a good year to be a dry farmer, right? I mean, 29, that winter of 2019. Well, we had a really late rain. It was yeah. um, actually, I feel like I kind of screwed that one up because we got four inches in late May. Right. And in the middle of uh, the signature Sonoma weekend. Right. Always. Yeah. And I had already tilled. And so getting back to dry farming, one of the... Um, one of the things we do is we we grow a really robust cover crop, and then that cover crop gets mowed and then incorporated into the soil. That's uh, what we call green manure. It helps um, sequester carbon uh, out of the atmosphere, but it also is a fertilizer once it's back in the soil and it breaks down over the growing season. The thing about cover crops that's so great is that they act as a way to, because they're Basically, a cover crop is what you're growing beneath the vines. And in a wet year, um, they s- take that moisture and they get rid of it if you don't, if you still have them. If you till them in, then all of a sudden that moisture is going stick, to stick around in the vineyard. Yeah. So in 2019, I'd already tilled because it had been a dry spring. And then we get that four inches of rain. And now we've really charged up the waters uh, in the vine. So yes, we had a, a lot of vigor that year. It was a lot of work to manage it that year. Um, fortunately we had enough, you know, we had a big yield and the grape quality I feel was great. So, you know, Crimea river, um, 20, 21 was also a lot of work, also a lot of work (laughs) because the vines were so stressed out. We've been on two years of drought and, uh, and there was so little rainfall last year. We had, uh, 14 inches. I think in 2019, we probably had 36 inches and we've already had what 16 16 so far. And we have our fingers crossed, yeah. and we're optimistic, Jack, that we're going to get more rain this year. Right. Because it could very well just stop. It no, could. no, no. It should be. It seems like it's flowing. I mean, well, I, you know, I was thinking really earlier. The door is open, right? Let's right. just keep it open. And, and, and one of the reasons why the, the fish are coming back to the creek is because of early storms, right? Like the right. water's running, and they're there, and they're ready to go. If it doesn't rain until December, then, you know, they're not making it that far. So, um, and, and they need it to be early storms. Hey, Will, could you talk a little bit about um, organic farming 
you know, um, auto, I think, I don't know that you guys probably ever talked about organic or not, but I mean, that was part of just the way it was farmed. Is that correct? Farming in general growing up for you? Um, uh, and then when you worked at King Estate, could you talk a little bit about that? Because King Estate was a little bit of a, um, they were at the southern end of Willamette and was a, a big a big winery in, in kind of ahead of its time. I mean, not that there weren't other, a, a number of other wineries like that, but a little bit about that time, if you don't mind. Uh, organic agriculture, um, obviously, you know, when my brother was managing Old Hill Ranch uh, in the late 90s, he was also managing Oak Hill Farm, which is the farm across the highway. It was a um, challenging time for him. He had more on his plate than uh, any human should have had. And that's when he um, met, I get, you know, I think Ted actually met Joe Miami, but I don't know how that he connected with Phil, but he did. And, um, but we had always farmed the vineyard organically by, by virtue of the fact we didn't use herbicides, we didn't use pesticides, um, but we didn't do a lot of inputs either. So, you know, there's one, one way to describe how auto farm, we call it benign neglect. He um, loved the vineyard. He didn't put any poison in it. He completely eschewed the whole chemical industry and felt that that was a total con, um, basically getting you to buy into the merry-go-round of chemicals. And um, anyway, he, uh, but at the same time, he didn't really understand that plants need, you know, he'd, we'd been cover cropping since we'd been farming that ranch, but the cover crops grew ankle high. So you look at that as a pretty good indication that your soils are depleted. And if you farm a place for 150 years, your soils are going to get depleted. If you're not figuring out how to um, get them, uh, so so organic. We became certified organic in um, I don't remember the year, but we lost our certification because our neighbors, which is the great state of California, sprayed herbicide into our vineyard. Thank you so much. I know. Thank you. It was great. Um, it was really a terrible experience. Holy I don't want to go into details. But, <laughs> yeah. but it was weird because the organic certification agency, they were just concerned about the fact that all of a sudden we weren't certified anymore as opposed to sort of the community you kind of were hoping for where they'd come and help you figure out how to resolve this issue and problem solve it. But fortunately, the county of Sonoma, it was awesome. And they came out and they Said did no one ever. Wait, yeah, I, like, I know. Can you right. say that again, please? I know. The county was great. They came out. Well, the, that's, you know, agriculture is a big deal here. So they um, came first, out. First they on the crest. Spanked the state. And, um, you know, we um, are still actually suffering from some of the damage. But um, can you go into any of that? Still suffering from some damage. Well, the herb, so number one, the herbicide they used is an herbicide that any anybody in the they don't even sell it at Wilbur Ellis because it's not something you need you would ever use in an area that has grape agriculture in it. It's so incredibly effective at grapes, and um, so just backtracking, what I believe happened, and I'm pretty sure this is the the case, is that um, the the staff at the developmental center would buy the herbicide from the state supplier. So they didn't buy it locally. So they didn't have anybody there to say, hey, dude, don't play this. Don't use this stuff anywhere near grapevines. But much worse than that is they weren't well versed in how to use herbicides. So they were trying to um, keep 
areas open and free because they're worried about their clients and they don't want their clients to get snake bit or whatever. So they're trying to keep everything denuded. Kill the poison oak. Yeah, and well, that's exactly what it was. So um, they actually sprayed up. We had a whole. We have a beautiful line of oak trees that are right in between our two properties. That's the state and us. And I'd always been noticing how they were just not doing well. We were losing one or two of these big oak trees a year. Never could quite figure it out. Then all of a sudden I came into the vineyard and I noticed this um, curling of the leaves of our vines. It was spring. It was so, it, um, and, it, and the leaves were coming out and they were completely malformed. Um, and some vines were dead. And so. Um, and this is the ancient block. Yeah, so I called Jesus. Phil. Phil came over. Phil called Bob. Um, Bob Gallagher. Gallagher. Bob came. Bob called the University of California. It was great. So then, then the county got involved. They all came out. We pretty much problem solved that um, what this what they'd been doing is because they have to file a report. Everybody who does an application files a report by law. And so we got to go back and review the report. We found out what herbicide it was, and that's called Garlon. Nothing you want to mess with. It's super dangerous stuff. Um, but they'd sprayed it up into the trees because they wanted to kill the poison oak that had grown up into the trees. <laughs> and what happens is with any herbicide, including Roundup, is once it volatilizes, any plant can take it up. And you'll see, this is all stuff I've learned subsequently, but we, they spray herbicide down in the hay fields and you can see damage that happens on your grapevines from those applications. That's like 40 miles away. Serious. I believe that to be wow. the case. I think I have the science to back it up. No, I'm, I'm not... Uh, uh, but you know, it's questioning you. It's I'm not, just it's not amazed. something you would notice. It's something you just see these little tiny spots. Maya pointed this out to me um, on your vi on your grape leaves, and it's more apparent in certain years than other years. Anyhow, um, I, I mean, just a quick you know Google search of Garlon. It talks about using it to kill trees. <laughs> <laughs> it's super super. Uh, yeah, if you want to kill something. Anyhow, uh, that was plenty time. of opportunities but, to do that. Yeah. The um, lesson there was, um, you know, whenever I see anybody spraying around, I go and approach them. And the other lesson is uh, don't take anything for granted. And um, and then so the vines, a lot of the vines died and they're, um, you know, they've been replaced subsequently. And yeah. Bob's your uncle. Right. And those oak trees are probably still dying. The oak trees are, uh, well, the... the the oak trees that are going to die, I think, have died. And, okay. and because the state is closed, they're no longer spraying. They stopped spraying after this. And th to their credit, they stopped spraying. Um, so that was nice. And um, Keep their patients away from snakes and poison oak. Yeah. And instead, give them cancer. But gnarly. But anyway, it's so it's organic <laughs> agriculture is a great paradigm. I believe in it. I think anybody who's buying our wine has probably doesn't need it to be certified because they understand how we farm it um, and they're um, so we don't we don't do the certification um, a lot of you know I have some criticism of the organic paradigm I felt like they spent a lot of time worrying about whether or not my compost had been aged for 90 days and didn't have E. coli in it when you're applying it after you've harvested and there's you know another um, you know 12 months before you're gonna that right. compost there's just you know it's a it's a system that has lots of rules and they're mostly well-intended rules but sometimes they they make it harder to farm i will say this about organic and this is something that i i get a little testy when somebody says well we're not organic 
we're not certified, but we're organic. Because one of the things that I learned from being organic, and I, this is a really important thing to say, is that they make you keep records. And being in a, 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 having been certified, I started keeping records. And I never really kept records in any kind of detail. And that's a huge help in terms of management, in terms of what you apply, when you apply it. Having a, and, th and the other thing is they make you have a farm plan. So it's not just I go out and farm, but you actually sit down, you write up a plan. Those are really important and helpful tools that the organic paradigm makes you do that a lot of farmers wouldn't do unless they were required to be, unless they were certified. So there's benefits to it for sure. Um, I just saw an article yesterday about early corn and soybean organic uh, certification and how they were just buying anything because they had the certification. They owned 1,600 acres and they were selling millions and millions and millions of acres worth of corn and soybeans. Absolutely not organic and made millions. They were just buying dollars. it and saying it was their That's product. absolutely it because they had the certification. Anything that ran through them was assumed to be. You have to be pretty nefarious to do that. It's, and they it were. Is, it's certainly possible to do it. There's lots of ways to get around any rules and regulations. I don't care if it's certification or not. Anybody can do it. But if you know the rules and you're a law-abiding farmer, it's you know you're not going to do that. So while it is po you know we say this was Midwest. This was know your farmer, yeah. and you'll right. be fine. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of knowing your farmer, tell us about um, the Otto's Grenache, and then you know let's let's talk a little bit of Otto. I also, um, you know, talk about your mom and Coral told me to ask about your grandmother too, and the sort of the family history of. Um, you know, you, your family in Sonoma um, and and how auto fits in that. You know, you kind of touched on a little bit, but in the in the terms of the auto's Grenache, how that how that all fits in. Um, well, we'll start with uh, the matriarchy of the family. So my grandmother um, lived in Palo Alto and um, she and her husband were looking for a second home. And her husband wanted something in Atherton or something like that. And my grandmother heard about this property up on Pythian Road, and she went to look at it. This is a property that didn't even have a road to it. They took a Willie's Jeep up to it. She fell in love with it, and they ended up buying it. It was un undeveloped. There was no water. There was no houses. There was It was 260 acres. Wait, what year? This is 1969. Uh, so um, <laughs> a long time ago. And... Really nothing up there. So she's a hardy, she's a hardy soul. Um, my parents and her, uh, she and her husband both built homes up there over the years. Unfortunately, they burnt down in 2020. Um, in beautiful. 2020. 2020, yeah, not 2017. Um, and uh, as I spent my youth there, um, growing up, we had horses. We had horses on Adobe Canyon Road. We'd ride them up on Fridays down Highway 12, ride them up to the ranch. Um, have them for the weekend then go back but it was because we had horses and we had a garden and we had fruit trees and all this other stuff we my mother had to be there all the time so we really had no social life since we were raised in san francisco so we didn't have much of a social life there much to my chagrin i you know was always i want to be with my friends i don't want to go up there um party well 
Yeah. Anyway, we... Um, You'd ended up like my father, so maybe, it's, maybe it worked <laughs> out. <laughs> so my mother was, had, um, was also a hearty soul, and um, she and my father got divorced in the uh, mid-70s, and then she met Otto at a... She would set up with Otto, and I remember meeting Otto. He showed up at our house in San Francisco. He was driving a Jaguar. He had a brown uh, wool suit on with a derby. He, I answered the door, and he was just so um, sure of himself. He just said, I'm here to pick up your mom or something like that. And, and um, I immediately fell in love with him. And he was quite a bit older than my mother, but um, really uh, a wonderful... I liked him a lot. He was not easy to know, that's for sure. He is of a different generation. There's a lot of things one could be critical about him for. But he was um, he believed in agriculture. He was very much focused. He had a um, his original property that, they, that he owned with his first wife was on H Street East, the um, called Magnolia Farms. And Magnolia Farms, um, he was doing trials with sheep and uh, using sheep to manage ground cover under fruit trees, um, and he was doing some other stuff. I uncovered some um, letters to the editor that he wrote back in the 80s talking about regenerative agriculture, a word I'd never heard to, of until... To the Index Tribune. Possibly, yeah. Okay. No, actually, no, it wasn't. It, it was, no, it was to a, it was to an agricultural journal. Okay. But talking about ag regenerative agriculture, a word I didn't learn about until 2010, so pretty progressive uh, in terms of his um, farming knowledge. Like I said, he was a gentleman farmer, but that's what he did. So um, my mother met him, and she um, realized that the farm was sort of underperforming, and so she put on her suspenders and um, started a – on Highway 12, she had a little honor system farm stand that she was selling her – zucchini she ended up um opening a store on the plaza for a couple of years uh, really? which is th where the sunflower cafe is yeah. now that uh, uh, that whole patio she did in the back there oh, that yeah. was her um so she was selling um flowers and other other things from the farm there and then um the farm still today we um now have uh, my mother passed away in 2019, and my niece, um, Ted's daughter, has taken over the farming um, with her husband, Jimmy, and they are kicking the yeah. shit out of that place. It's, it's awesome to see what they're doing. The first stop in uh, the Friday morning market in this, the, uh, the uh, Oak Hill yeah. stand, for sure. So, um, for those that know and those that don't, they'll look for it. Um, can you tell the story of the eucalyptus tree in front of the driveway? To the driveway. driveway. So the eucalyptus tree, uh, if you drive up and down Highway 12 and you're passing B.R. Cone Winery, you'll notice on the other side of the road this old eucalyptus that was toppled over. It's a piece of artwork. Well, it's like a two-story yeah. root ball. It's, I think it was windstorm in 72 or something. Or okay. maybe it was, no, it was later than that. It was later than that. But it was a big windstorm. It toppled, and that property actually is owned by Bruce Cone. Um, and he didn't see any reason to deal with it because he, that was, that's, there's nothing he could do with that piece of property. So he left it and, um, it just is, and it's funny now, almost any day of the week, you'll see people out there taking th yeah. photos of themselves or selfies of themselves. With one that of the many Buckland contributions to uh, 
the Instagram world of Sonoma Valley. No, we'll give that to Cone. Okay. Well, now it's, it's vintage, vintage wine estates, yeah. but um, I don't hey, see any. Uh, I, I took photos of as a tourist uh, uh, 30 years it's, ago, man. It's an it's long, iconic, a long time ago. It's iconic piece of rotting mom's yeah it's always changing because the weather you know knocks right. the dirt out of it and yeah. mom's um roadside stand was built into that right. so it was sort of like a lean to coming off of the right. roots off of that thing It'd be a sturdy yeah. sturdy wall to attach something to i mean that must yeah, have it's been not a, moving no <laughs> i wonder what that thing weighs Honest to God. It's less bi- and less it's every big. year. It's <laughs> big. So did we talk about the Otto's Grenache? Yes, we did. Well, no, no we, we, we talked about Otto. Yeah, we talked a little bit right. about Otto. Um, can we try the Otto's? I haven't had these wines for at least two days. Oh, jeez. Okay, well. Let's jog your memory a little yeah, bit. Yeah, seriously. Um, Otto's Grenache is a dry... I'm reading the back label. Oh, good. (laughs) I struggled with this one. Otto's Grenache is a dry farm field blend planted in 2010 in honor of our stepfather, Otto Teller, who purchased the historic Old Hill Ranch in 1980. The vineyard had been badly neglected as blackberries and derelict vehicles had taken over. (laughs) Experts suggested he rip it out and start and replant, but Otto felt a kinship with the old vines. They were tough and gnarly, much like him. Using compost, <coughs> kelp, I'm not tearing up. Oops! And hard labor. Good save, man. He nursed the vineyard back to health. Thanks to Otto, one of California's most historic and beloved vineyards is preserved in perpetuity. So, um, I made two wines in 2019, in uh, 2016, I think maybe it was the first vintage. One is called Otto's Grenache, and one's called Anne's Field Blend. Anne is my mother's name. Anne's Field Blend is a small little block of grapes that grow on. Um, Oak Hill Farm uh, that mom purchased back in 2010 perhaps. It's a really charming little one acre block of field blend, probably 100 year old vines. It's right across from uh, the entrance to uh, B.R. Cone. You don't see it from the road, but it's... Is that where Rosie lives? Exactly, exactly. Um, Exactly. I think she still lives there. And um, so it was sort of a nice way for me to honor them my mother was quite touched um autos to me what i was trying to do and it i'm not 100 percent successful i don't think auto would fault me but we established this vineyard as being dry farmed it is on the mogul that you were talking about earlier the soils uh, it used to be cabernet um, that block was planted by joe votek back in ding Back in um, 1980, we leased it to be our cone until 2007. His lease uh, didn't expire. We had to kick him off because he was not able to farm under the organic requirement that we um, wanted the vineyard farmed under. And we subsequently... um, took over it and started making wine in 2007 and then the vines were planted on AXR rootstock which is vulnerable to phylloxera. We eked out vintages for many years and then finally um, ripped out the remaining vines in 2020. No longer are they there. The Grenache was planted in 2010, Otto's Grenache. It is a very challenging site. The reason being it's the hillside 
so it's painting it's pointing excuse me due um, east meaning it gets afternoon heat super hot site super hot uh, exposure it also is very shallow so the soils are um, about two to three feet deep maybe four feet deep at the bottom Otto would say convincingly that convincingly that um, vine should be planted on the hillsides and the valley floor should be left for food production it was his ideology so it seemed to me this was sort of an appropriate place to honor him in terms of his legacy um, anyhow so in 2020 I installed irrigation on this vineyard I turned it on in 2021 um, just twice one of the things I um, so it's a nice having these two wines next to each other the ancient Grenache and the Otto's Grenache they um, I think intuitively one would suspect that the ancient Grenache is bigger or going to be bigger because the vines are a hundred years old and we suspect or we think that old vines tend to be less vigorous they tend to have smaller berries especially dry farmed but Otto's block which is quite a bit younger planted in 2010 in my experience quite a bit 140 years younger. 140 years whatever um the if you look at the grenache clusters on autos they are tiny berries compared to the old vines and what that means from the wine perspective is more density more intensity um more tannins um and so it's been it's it's a they couldn't be, you know, they're growing a quarter mile apart, but they couldn't be diff more different, the two sites. Well, and, and in the way that the ancient is more Old Hill than Grenache, this is a Grenache lover's Grenache. Yeah. You know, it's, it's speaks to, you know, the site, but it also is, you know, if you took it, put it in a lineup, you go, that's Grenache probably 100%. Um, We're expanding this. I... We have six or seven acres that we haven't planted yet. I don't know what we're going to plant. The, the most photographed acres in Sonoma Valley. And uh, cover of Friedman's uh, uh, calendar. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> the things we take pride in. Was that, was that a licensed photo? No. No. <laughs> I'm suing them. <laughs> suing them I for get free a hardware for yeah, a year. Lifetime yeah, supply. Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, um, yeah, we're we're into Grenache I think it's funny Grenache to me I know you guys have are into Grenache and I know you've interviewed a lot of winemakers that are into Grenache Kool-Aid and it's funny because you th I think back to uh, before Sideways and Pinot Noir and just what what that was going through um, everybody every winemaker you talked to wanted to make Pinot Noir it was sort of the winemaker's grape it was a challenge to make it it was hard to make it so that you loved it uh, in fact you know what is I, I think I don't remember some winemaker commented that you know how many how many wines have you made that you loved and they said none I'd never made a Pinot I liked yet but I keep trying and I kind of feel you like keep buying them and then Sideways came along the movie Sideways came along and you know everybody and their brother um, started buying Pinot Noir and it changed everything dramatically but there's no movie yet about Grenache but nonetheless it feels like it's the winemaker's grape it's it's winemakers you ask a winemaker what's exciting to them and they always talk about Grenache. Well, I mean, these are exciting versions of Grenache from you know, that, are, yeah. that speak to 
truly it's it's viability in Sonoma Valley uh, in a changing climate. Um, you know, Ooh, that's big. Yeah. Um, they, you know, you could put these on a on a the same stage as you know the Grenache, the great Grenaches of the world. I'd like right to there. see a few more years on them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's particularly. Um, it seems less vulnerable to heat. Of all the 30 varieties we grow, it seems the least vulnerable. Right. So there's that. Beautiful wines. Thank you. Really nice job. And, and and they should be. I mean, you've got a great spot to apply your craft. And it, right. it works out well. So uh, compliments on the new label also, Will. Um, is is the Bambino and the Ancient going to um, start to look I like this? I don't know. You guys could help me. Here, here's a story. I hope my family's <laughs> listening here. Um, <laughs> my siblings. I, I think I probably should mention. I always wait till the end of the podcast. Right. Once the, everybody stops yeah. listening. <laughs> uh, Bucklin, the brand, is owned by my three siblings and myself. Old Hill Ranch is owned by my brother and myself. Um, when I um, was toying around this whole thing, what we we're going to do, we talked about what we we're going to name it. And uh, one of the stories I like to tell is... Um, and this is 20-some-odd years ago. This is 20-some-odd years ago. I went. I was interviewing for a, a winery to, to, to make my wine in, a custom crush facility. I went to visit Steve McCrosty. And um, we kind of had this nice meeting and everything. At the end of the meeting, he said, well, what are you going to name your brand? I said, I don't know. And he says, well, why don't you name it Buckland? And I said to Steve McRosty, whose brand is McRosty, I said, I would never name it Buckland. That's way too egotistical. <laughs> anyway, he didn't invite me to make wine there. It, might, it probably was because I gave him like 10-page protocols, but uh, it could have also been that comment. Anyhow, so... Um, we ran out of options or we just we ran out of ideas and I didn't think I could name it Old Hill Ranch and then along comes Bedrock um, which you know has a vineyard named Bedrock and a brand named Bedrock and I wished I'd named it Old Hill Ranch because as we have sat here and discussed um, our our wines we really talked about the vineyard and so that's really what I feel like I want to represent the wine so I um the, the, this new label came from a um, from our picking bins. I had um, a certain finite area that I could label it. And my Old Hill Ranch signs all read straight across, and I left justified the three the three words. So it says O H R down the, the side, and I went, oh, that's exactly what it. Sh that's perfect. I loved it. Showed it to my siblings. Eh, didn't really like it. They like their last so name. So now I'm sort of in, I'm in Never Never Land. Uh, I have my, uh, the original label on sort of the, the wines that are released into the market. And then I've used the, the new um, product label, which really emphasizes the vineyard and has our name on the bottom of it um, as our direct consumer label. And so that's where I've landed. Maybe one day I'll change them all, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll change them all back. It's kind of complicated having two labels in terms of 
everything. Everything, but um, and siblings. And siblings. Yeah, and siblings. Yeah, <laughs> my oh. siblings are amazingly supportive. Absolutely, one hundred percent, except for this one thing. <laughs> so I figured maybe I ought to throw it out to them. You know, I don't know. <laughs> now let's blame them for the one thing instead of giving them credit for all the other things that okay. they're supportive of. Okay. Well, that's certainly the the Buckland way. <laughs> I, I love the way the Old Hill Ranch sits on the label. Well, I know uh, 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 the father of a certain person sitting here hates it. Really? <laughs> uh, who's John? Is that your dad? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't understand it, but um, I, and it's certainly I've had I've you know if if I sit down and listen to everybody's talking about their um, labels by committee. Yeah, right. Dangerous, Ooh. dangerous game. That's a good segue to King of State. <laughs> That was a really um, important l lesson I learned was labels by committee, not a good idea. Is It's really great if you have a vision and you, and you just figure it out yourself. You can have professional help, no problem. But if you every, employ everybody's ideas, you end up with a lot of different ideas. Uh, well, and and no wasn't, wasn't that part of King Estate? Wasn't it like um, customer owned or? It was owned, it was owned by uh, the King, the King family. But they were, you know, they were generous, and we were learning as we were going, and and um, so they thought it was a wise thing to 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 use everybody's input. And um, in the end, I think, whew, uh oh, oh no, <laughs> from our glitch last week, we're getting a little that, vibration. That. Like, Holy cow! Okay, no, I don't need that. <laughs> but it's two hours in. We so do we do ahead. minimal intervention podcasting, so this is like we we just you know kind of as yes. it rolls things. <laughs> Absolutely get Jasmine that. showed up with an empty glass. That's what's exactly as she should. That's when she, she means she wants the table back. Is what King State was a great experience. <laughs> Thank you, Will. Um, <laughs> we farmed in the southern Willamette Valley, and we uh, the King family they bought about a thousand acres, twelve hundred acres. We um, we I should say they, uh, of which I was a part of, but we had our own nursery, so we did our own um, bench grafting nursering that's cool um, we sold grapes that was a great experience we um, um, so we developed our own vineyards but we also bought from vineyards all across the Willamette Valley which is a big valley we're um, two hours two and a half hours to travel to the northern end of the valley um, and um, the th really thing that I loved about King Estate or working there um, was the diversity of agriculture in the valley so we worked with farmers that were growing brassicas, that were growing walnuts, that were growing hazelnuts, that were growing barley and wheat. Um, so we really, you know, hands the size of ham hocks, real, um, not to say that there aren't farmers like that here in Sonoma, but that's, you know, diversified farming. And they'd have, you know, five acres of Grenache sort of as a hedge and um, didn't necessarily know how well how to grow great grapes, but we had a, um, a good staff and we could help them. But you also got exposure to a lot of different agricultural cr crops. And that was, I thought, just part of, you know, being a good farmer of anything, it's helpful to know a lot about farming and different crops and different implements and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, farming there, they grow mint. Mint was a big crop and grass seed. Ooh, grass seed's terrible. Lots of herbicide. Not a yeah. good crop to be growing. But mint's awesome because they have to, they have their own distilleries. They have to make, they have, they sell them. It's like if you want to sell your product to, um, Wrigley's to make gum, you'd have to sell it as a distillate. So they grow the mint and then distill it and then sell it. So it's really fun to huh. be up That's there and to get ex exposure. 
um, it's a it's a great great place to get exposure to agriculture. Was was the mint there? So I mean, I plant mint in my yard, and I got to be careful because it comes up in the driveway in the front yard. Did they have? How do you contain it when you're growing it? I suspect they use herbicides, but I don't know. Uh, no. The uh, it's and it's not the same mint. Um, okay. It's a it's a different, but it's still probably pretty vigorous. And um, but they start over every year, so they rip it out, start again. Oh, gotcha. I still have my kingest my. When people come to the restaurant and they talk about paying too much for wines that are on the wine list, I always tell them my story of the King Estate Pinot Gris that I had in Kapalua. So we were on Maui and went out. Mother-in-law took us out to a nice dinner at a really nice restaurant, and and we just wanted a simple bottle of wine with dinner. And and like one of the cheapest wines was the King Estate Pinot Gris, and it, I think it was seventy-two dollars wow. on the wine list. And I I had had it before, but I had gotten it at Safeway or whatever it was for like twelve bucks, and so I was, I was fucking pissed. <laughs> that, but that's the one you bought, bought. You bought the cheapest one on the list. Yep. Yep. Well, coming from a restaurant, when you know what stuff costs, maybe too, it was it's the reserve to, that you had. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, it's still. <laughs> do not have a cork, Will. <laughs> the old nothing very, better than the very visceral experience of. Cracking the screw hop on a, on a the crack of a screw cap on a reserve bottle bottom. of wine. Crack from the bottom, make it seem cooler. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you grab the neck. That's what I do with the screw caps. You don't grab the top, and and sometimes they strip. So right. you don't grab from the top. You got to grab from the the other piece of oh, like the bottom piece of, of tin. And then you twist the bottle, and you get that really nice crack. And then you make sure that the top comes off. So we had um, the art of opening screw caps. Uh, we. We again, they, we built a 200,000 square foot winery at King Estate. It's huge. It's massive. It took like 25 minutes to walk around it. <laughs> um, tons of space, beautiful, a little gaudy, but beautiful architecture. Um, built on the top of a hill. Um, we had 100 open top fermenters. It was of, of what of like varying sizes. Mostly um, six by six, almost all of them were six by six feet. Right. Um, so nice dimensions. Yeah. Um, all of them with a punch down rail, but tracking fermentation and it was, and really the biggest the biggest challenge I had there. I started there in 1992. The, they just started building, broke ground when I got there. Um, was getting labor there just was no experienced people i mean we brought people in from california but um to get people that would wanted to be in the wine business and then wanted to you know grow it was that was the biggest challenge we the first three years was one of the, the hardest working winery i've ever seen it just was crazy but um now oregon is so developed there's wonderful people all over that state making great wines um, it was very. When I went to Oregon, we went to Safeway in Eugene. They didn't have a single Oregon wine in it. Hmm. That's a big transition. Now it's almost all Oregon wines. Right. Yeah. It was all California. And that was not you know really. That was ninety. Ninety-two. Right, not that long ago. No, was it, you'd think it would have been. And within the last you know last thirty years. Ooh, that's corked. That's what I thought too. And I'm sure the same thing in Washington too. Probably was the same way where it was, you know, mostly California wines, and then now. That's too bad. Yeah. 
Well, I saved it for last. It's all good. I guess. It was a great lineup until this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, cor- but it's not, it's not like the most. No, it's not awful. It's, I mean, not, it's awful. not awful. Yeah, I mean, I actually, until you guys said it. There until was, you guys said it, 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 like, kinda, it was a little like wet cardboard. Yeah, I just took it as being a field blood. Right. Is it corked or is it a la Conte? Right. <laughs> the wine we're tasting now is called our Mixed Blacks. So this is um, probably the last vintage we'll be doing that. It's a, um, it's actually really good. Wait, doing <laughs> that wine or calling it that wine? Doing this wine. The reason okay. being is so when... This was, the, this was a left, uh, an artifact of the Constellation Exactly. Contract. Well stated. Um, in um, the old days, we used to harvest the Zinfandel separate from what we called the Mixed Blacks. And just worth mentioning that Mixed Blacks was a, a term that was used to describe field blends. Old farmers talk about the Mixed Black vineyard, black being the color of the grape. Anyway, so we'd harvest the Zin separate from the Mixed Blacks. Constellation, in their wisdom didn't want to take all that they would the second picking would go through and they didn't want all the fruit so I happily took it um, so it's it's very simply described as everything but the Zin so it's 29 varieties it's not 30 um, it's you know the number one variety in it is probably Grenache and, and Alicante Boucher are the number two varieties um, Grenache and Alicante are kind of symmetrical because Alicante is a is crossed with Petit Boucher and and, um, and Grenache, so they have a similar ripening curve, and they and I think, you know, if um, if Alicante is a good blending variety for Zinfandel, it's a really good blending variety for Grenache. Just just you know, dabble do ya. Second that with our muchas piedras. Dab a dabble do ya, but um, and then of course you know so those those two varietals may make up forty percent of this blend, and then. It's pretty hard to talk about what it is other than it's those 30 varieties. We get devoted but it's fun. It's entire a, show I, I love all uh, the other varieties in the I have a lot ranch. of clients who really uh, gravitate towards this wine because it is so big and, and jammy. Um, and it's kind of a fun way to experiment with what the ancient is or isn't, what, what part of it is made up by this, these right. uh, other varietals in it. I mean, it would be... Uh, at least academically interesting to taste this uh, a zin quote unquote true zin from old hill and then like the, a pure the zin. ancient the ancient as the you know conglomerate of all of them just to sort of see how all of the pieces kind of come together and play as a winemaker um there's so many temptations one experiences walking through a field blend like right. if I could make that I could do this you know, we're doing the Grenache, um, the mixed blacks we've made on several occasions. Um, there's a lot, and the mixed whites was born out of that sort of desire to um, manipulate. But I try to keep my hands to myself and put them in my pockets and let the vines do the talking and the walking. And um, if did, that did we even emphasize the fact that the the mixed whites, even though it's a separate block. The varieties that are in there, by and large, show up in the ancient block. Is that is they that definitely a, do? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really you. You on our Instagram page, you can see some photographs of, of a bin of grapes, and it's you know red and white grapes. It's kind of a pretty little ode to to a field blend. But um, yeah, we do pick everything. Yeah, now, 2021 wouldn't have been a year to try and 
select out the mixed blacks no. from <laughs> everything no, no. else. We would have been right. we did some seven cases. Of... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. I mean, to, but to this, speak to this wine. It did, you know, the robustness of this wine. Uh, powered right through whatever sort of TCA it has on it, because unlike you know a true, a true, you know more typical cork taint issue, yeah. there's still fruit, right? Which is yeah. why you, I, right. you know, you kind the, of gonna like. But the cork taint is underlying, and it ruins yeah. yeah. Did Bill Loftus work at at Kenwood when you were there? Uh, no, Bill was. I was. I started in '86, um, so I worked with you know those guys jeff and mark and steve um and jim jim and uh and bruce um but yeah uh and you were there when 80 i'm gonna guess it was 83 okay yeah 84 maybe yeah i i, I had a i interviewed with don van Stavern at chateau chateau saint jean thank you yep i don't remember the names of these wineries anymore um i'm we really get, i'm really get glad i ended a up at Kenwood. what a great group of people man there that was they, just a what yeah a, we, what a we, blessing. we we had a we i i always say that i lived there during the the glory years and um because it was it was it, it, it was it was great you know you went down to the tasting room and finished off whatever and if you wanted to taste something else you opened it up and um, we had lunch every day during harvest and the refrigerator full of beer and i mean we worked our ass off and everybody um, knew a lot everybody knew a lot and um uh, but Mike was the king, so. Uh, and we've we talked; those were the glory years of of the business of the mid-major sure. winery in general, sure. right? That yeah. like size business and well, and, and it was small, and of, it was a, it was a right. it was an amazing community, you know. And and I and I was definitely on the tail end of it um, when you guys were all there. It was certainly growing, and 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 the valley was alive, and you know there was a lot of competition, but. It, you know, there was still the cellar rat ball that Lance Well, it could be owned on. by a two ex-cops or whatever that, right. that um, right. lived in San Francisco right. and somehow made it work and we're making 250,000 cases of wine. And, yeah. uh, you know, now it's a corporation and it's not uh, any any winery that size is most likely owned by a corporation and yeah. not, not and, and Mike was uh, not to denigrate corporations. I would never do that. Right, of course. Um, In case any of them are listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and wanted to buy the Old Hill Ranch name. <laughs> Not for sale, I'm yeah, sure. sell the Buckland name, and then you can get your siblings off your back and just call it Old Hill Ranch. <laughs> well, Will, thank you very much. Um, uh, this has been great. There's, You have a wealth of information, and, uh, and we love hearing it all. Taking it we all just in. scratched the surface. I know. We'll, we'll do, we didn't talk you about. know. Really, phylloxera or Peru, or we can talk about a lot of stuff, but maybe Peru. we can have a second part of the part a, a, three, part two, yeah. part three. Yeah, we'll bring you back. All right, well, part two, you know, well, no, part go, two will be from the there. the bridge of the Starship. Yeah, Starship Enterprise. See, the Starship Enterprise feels a little bit of it, there's like a little encroachment there. The Starship Auto, it really <laughs> actually feels like a boat. <laughs> yeah, it's it feels like you're on a the bridge of a boat. It's it's uh, because the, the window's. You know, it's the, the building is a trapezoid, so the windows stick out a little bit. Um, anyway, yes, you would love it. It's yeah. amazing. You've you seen it? Yeah, we uh, the the uh, the heart of the Magnolia oh, Harvest Party. Yeah. I heard something happened at that party that I don't know about. I left early with the two year old, so I don't know anything. <laughs> I heard there was some some hijinks that I missed out on. So well, That's given the the 
community we didn't talk about magnolia at all we didn't talk about magnolia at all do you want to talk about magnolia I do, but not make your wine at Magnolia. But I think we're it's a great place to make wine. Yes. I mean, we did do a Magnolia show. <laughs> you did. Yeah. We did a. We did and they, a. And they all wax poetically about you. No. Oh. We had. We, it was. A, it was them. in the days of Zoom. Zoom casting. Uh-huh. So we had Dan and one oh, computer and, that, Dan, and uh, Jack little, another. It was a little some of yeah. Some you know the audio issues of the Zoom life. We're gonna get all those which we've Zoom clearly ones. have no problems right. with now that we're back in <laughs> the real world. You could do a little podcast and get you know four or five of the winemakers on there and. Well, yeah. there's a, basically. I mean, I, I intend very much to to sort of keep pulling people out of the ranks. Uh, you know, Tom Darling and some of the other folks that are making wine in there and sit down with their wines at the table and and really dig into because there's a you know it is. Uh, there's, you know, how many ever 12 different wineries and 15 different philosophies of winemaking that are, um, you know, in all their different ways being, um, experienced and and experimented with. And it's a, it's a fun place. I've worked in a lot of wineries. It's one of the, uh, I mean, it's, it's different because it's just a box, but it's just a comfortable place to be. Yeah. People seem happy there. It was. I think everybody. I don't know. It was a happy year to be in wineries in 2021. I thought one of that, but yeah, maybe it's because it wasn't so much fruit. Yeah, it was less work and less smoke. No yeah, no fire. And yeah. I was, and you know, it was. Thanks we've for reminding us. Yeah, there's the the joy of 2021 and the harvest that uh, we didn't we didn't yeah, haven't felt in a while. I don't think. Uh, you know, eight, 17 was 17, and then 18 and, and 19. Then it rained. Were, right, and then it rained. As long as thank, thank God. God we were done, yeah. we were done. You had been done for you were you know, like already been on two vacations. Oh my God, we had but, uh, we harvested everything within one week. Never anything from like the whites that. through to the Grenache. There was um, it was over eight days, I think. Yeah, wow. Uh, we'd harvested all the bedrock, out of Carlisle, Buckland. Um, started the mixed whites, started the rosé, went to the mixed whites, and then I think there was something we did later that I don't remember. I'm not remembering, but. Because um, it was so long ago. It was awesome. Yeah. I, Although I think some people are just either just finished up. We know the bedrock oh, know. guys just finished up. Right. But that was from southern oh, that's Santa, Santa Barbara. Barbara. Yeah. But I, I think there's some probably still some fruit being picked somewhere here in Sonoma County. Dusty Neighbor just completed his. <laughs> Let's just his. say that picking everything in a week fits in with my semi-retired off. lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Donated exactly his hair. Exactly right. <laughs> Donate the ponytail. Um, so, uh, all right. how do we, how do we buy Buckland the, uh, wines? The website is a great resource for, um, old, for learning about Buck our wines Zin. and, um, buckzin.com. And, um, we have a mailing list. We do a newsletter, um, twice a year, sometimes three, but really twice. And we make, um, the wines that we have here, there's a Cabernet. Um, we bought actually grapes this year from Bedrock to continue our Cabernet because we ripped it out last year and um, there's a, probably a few other wines on there that the Anne's is, is another wine that we make um, anyway we like I said we have some that are direct to consumer I don't I have a tasting room no I don't um, we do uh, have people come and visit and um, it's just me the Swiss Hotel any, is your tasting room right I don't have no the the tower the, the bridge, <laughs> the, bridge. <laughs> the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. If I don't like you, I'm going to beam you out of there. And you're um, <laughs> distributed in a number of states, correct? Yeah, we are. New York, Utah, and California, of course. And uh, it's um, really New York and Bay areas, mostly what it is. Although I was in Utah a couple of years ago, and 
There was a bottle of Bambino on the list. And it was like $700. No, no. it wasn't. It, it was very okay. reasonably priced. The Utah, Utah is the a Utah great market. state to sell wine in. Um, I have a wonderful relationship with Francis Fecto and his um, company is called Libation. And he's a, the, the state buys the wine. It's kind of an interesting paradigm. I think it might be... Some Every state has their own rules based on what happened after Prohibition. Utah's is unusual. The most prohibitionary. It is, except for the fact that the state actually literally buys the wine and the state sells the wine. So the income goes to the state and they use it to fund schools. Seems like a pretty smart move to me. Yeah. I know it's not super American in terms of how we like to do things, but they make a fair amount of money and yeah. and they, they sell a lot, a lot of, of wine. There's Sorry? a lot of kids in Utah to send. To, there's more children in Utah per capita than any yeah, other state. Yeah, they have a lot of kids. So you got yeah, a I lot wonder, of schools Yeah, I wonder, why is that? Sam, I, well, all, all the Buckland Bambino all, they've been drinking. Exactly. Apparently, someone's got to wear all that magic underwear they're producing. <laughs> all right. And do you want to give a quick shout out to your life partner, who we all love, Lizanne Pastori? No. My wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I do want to say hello to Lizanne. I love you so much, yeah. babe. <laughs> <laughs> Did we just totally pass each other in the night? I don't there? think we ever talked about her. My wife is amazing. She's yeah. um wow, what a segue. We don't have a good segue here, but she's um a physical therapist who works on the pelvic floor and her clients are so happy that she exists. And um like she's also a really good beekeeper. Where she work? She has her own practice in Sonoma on in the blue building over on... Um, Andrew? Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and it's uh, harder to get an appointment with Lizanne than it is to get a tasting at Old Hill Ranch. <laughs> it is harder to get an appointment. <laughs> you're, you're booking out. You're so right. It's about hey, it's amazing. four months to yeah. get to see her. Yeah. And um, anyway, she's uh, a, a great partner to have on the ranch. She's big into bees. And um, like me, she's learned a lot. And she'll be the first to tell you how much she's learned and still hasn't finished. Good shout out. Shout out. That's it. All right. All right. I, I, well, I, there's, if you're listening on Friday. I was scared. Friday, I thought you meant somebody else. I don't know right. who my other life partner is. <laughs> Lizanne, if you're, hopefully you're not listening. Uh, if you're listening on Friday or Saturday, tune in on uh, Facebook Live about oh, yeah. 2 o'clock Pacific time. Uh, we're partnering with Jamie Kaler of The Parents Lounge, and he has a new comedy album out. Old friend of Paul White's, he's going to host a virtual vinyl Sunday with us. Um, so music or comedy? We got music, we got comedy, everything. Variety show. I'm gonna do some trivia questions. Um, a little vaudeville. Oh, we got Bart Hansen's magic tricks. If we, this was only <laughs> video cast. Oh my god! All right. Completely fooled. Thank I have no idea how he did it. God, we aren't. And somehow makes Shannon Blanc with without a thumb. Uh. <laughs> All right. All right. Talk to you guys right. next week. Thanks for listening. Everybody. I'd like to try that, Shannon. Oh, we'll drop you off a bottle when I bring you. The By the way, thank you for the bottle of Grenache. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, that I, went. That lasted. I, I had to go.